drug users aren't bad people. They're just caught up in it, you know? Yeah, and, and, and often, this is something people find interesting, right? I actually liked many of the drug dealers I arrested on some kind of a personal Very level. charismatic people. They're very right. they're entrepreneurs. Good salesperson, right. They love their kids, too. Right. And I'd say, you know, screw you, dude. See you in jail. You know, I... Just to let you know, because you should know. Yeah, I'd like to introduce Rocky Heron. He's a former DEA agent uh, with federal government, federal DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, and he is currently working for the San Diego County Office of Education as the ambassador of drugs and alcohol. Ambassador of alcohol and other drugs. Oh, so that's nice. Does that mean you uh, provide them with drugs? You bring those in, the ambassador. My, my, my job title, as written, might suggest the wrong thing. So I, you know, I, 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 I add uh, ambassador of alcohol and other drug prevention. Prevention. Is yeah. there, but that, but from what I understand, that's not in there. No, it's not in my title. But that's the the, the purpose of the job. Um, is to get me out in front of the community in any school that'll have me, any church, any club, any community group that'll let me get the message. And it's it's kind of a unique position. I think it's unique in the country. I really am. My superintendent's Paul Gotthold, and I'm, I'm really grateful to him for creating the position and giving me a chance to get out in the community. He's a good guy. Yeah, very I good like man. Paul. So you're doing this through the DEA? No, no. I retired from DEA two years ago, and then the county office uh, of education was aware of my work, and they created a position, and then I... And I I moved into the county office of education. So I work for the county school district, um, and, but my, I have a very broad portfolio. I'm not limited to schools. And, uh, and for schools, I can talk to, to public, private, or parochial schools, and like I said, any community group that will have me. And uh, it's, it's an amazing job. Before, before we go into that, I want to find out why you decided to go in the DEA because it was during a time when cocaine was – like everywhere. Remember my remember Miami Vice? Was that yeah, was that the eighties, uh, yeah? I applied in I applied in ninety. Ninety. I got out of college in eighty nine and uh, was it tail no, end? I, I applied right. I graduated eighty nine, I applied in eighty nine, took a year and I hired on in ninety. So yeah. yeah, it was at the end of the cocaine wars. Right. Um uh, the country was was, you know, openly against drug consumption and the drug dealers. Um but for me personally, you know, I'm aware of it starting uh in eighty five. When Kiki Camarena, the DEA agent, was kidnapped and murdered in Mexico, and he was a San Diego guy, and he was going to come to San Diego after his his tour right. in Guadalajara, but he but he died, and he died he, or he was murdered. He was murdered. He was murdered by the traffickers in Guadalajara. Was he tortured? Yes. Why yeah, did they mur- Why did, did they know he was a DEA? There's a lot of argu- Oh yeah, no, he was kidnapped, kidnapped because he was a DEA agent. A um, lot of arguments over the years as to who actually kidnapped him and why. Um, so they never solved the case. You no, know, no, they convicted a bunch of people in, in the U.S. and they convicted a bunch of people in Mexico and they caught the people that did it. Um, There's just a lot of argument about what their real motives were. And I don't know, you know, but what happened to Kiki was, was absolutely horrible. And it, shock, it shocked our country. And, and what people today don't remember is we didn't have Red Ribbon Movement. The whole Red Ribbon Movement started right. in, in Congress because the country was shocked by what had happened to Kiki. And it shocked me. I was 18 years old and it shocked me. And at 18, I had this crazy dream that, well, maybe someday I can be a DE agent. Um, but I was in a church group in high school. And, and uh, interestingly, years later, I saw my old church group sponsor. And he remembers when I was 15 or 16 that I was a very vocal advocate against drug abuse, which I don't remember. I didn't use. I mean, I made a decision never to use drugs, but I didn't remember being vocal about it. So actually, apparently my desire to fight the drug abuse problem you know, was even older than I record, rem- who remembered. St- who started the war on drugs? Like Nick, who sa- who actually coined that term? We're having a war on – remember that? Was it Reagan? No, no, Nixon. 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 Nixon, oh, goes Nixon had a war after the, uh, you know, the uh, the war, Vietnam. He came out, realized there was a problem with 
a lot of stuff being smuggled in America. So he declared war, which he didn't win because it's still going but, on. But well, I, I could declare it all day long. It's not going to end. Yeah, and and we had we had agencies, federal agencies, fighting the drug problem before. Right. But Nixon created the Drug Enforcement Administration. That's why it's he created it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. The pres- I think my understanding is the president can create an administration. He can't create a department. Okay. Right? Um, but he, or a bureau like the FBI, but he can create an administration. So that's my understanding that Nixon just said, I want this. Um, and they, they expanded the previous agency and they hired a bunch of uh, Vietnam vets and New York cops and former customs officers and said, go to work. And those guys were lunatics, those early agents. Um, yeah. They got things done they, though, right? They well, were were they, they rogue? No, but they started in 73 and, and, you know, there weren't a lot of rules. I mean, we had the law, right. but as far as the rules about how you get the, the job done yeah. was, were pretty slim. And over the years, you know, when they made mistakes, <laughs> then the, the rule book got thicker. Don't do that. The, our, our, our manual now is enormously thick. Correct. Right, today. But the DE agent manual back then was very thin. Right. Uh, but I came on in 90. And, and in the federal system, you need 20 years to get your pension. So there were a bunch of those original guys still on the job in 1990. Right. And I came in at 23 years old and I didn't have a clue. I mean, right. I, I was the cleanest kid. I was a virgin at 23. I never right. smoked a cigarette. I never used a drug. And it's a miracle I got hired by DEA. <laughs> was it, were well, you a virgin because you're ugly? No, I just, I, I was, I was just, <laughs> oh, my self-esteem was, was terrible. And, and uh, I was kind of a nerdy guy. And I just, and actually I, uh, when I came out of Pomona College, uh, I went to Francis Parker in San Diego and then Pomona College. That's and a good college. The Pomona is the Ivy League of the West Coast. Very, very yeah. good college. Nice college. And um, I got into some good law schools. The best law school I got into was USC. And uh, everyone's like, oh, my God, you got to go to USC. Nobody, nobody says no to go to USC. And right. I'm like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Right. And I threw an application in with the DEA, not really expecting to get hired, but it was sort of like a Hail Mary. Yeah. And as it turns out, like the week I was deciding on which law school to go to, um, I got a call from the DEA recruiter. It was a Wednesday, and I got a call from the recruiter saying, "Hey, can you start Monday?" Oh my! What gosh. a good! Isn't that a best phone call? Well, it, it, okay, I it were was, you nervous? Yeah, and I, I lacked it, confidence. You know, did, am I at 23 with no real life experience? Right. How, I'm going off to be a DEA agent, right? But but it's interesting that that recruiter, yeah, um, when he first saw me, I came in after I graduated college, and I, I came in, so I was 21, 22, looking like I was about 18. Right. And I walk in his office, and the, this guy had been gunned down in an undercover deal in Chicago, Gus Vasquez, stud undercover guy, you know, brass balls. And he's alone in this three-story building in Chicago with four drug traffickers, and they all pull guns out and start shooting him. He pulls his gun out and starts shooting back. But one of the bullets hit him in the jugular. And the, it took a long time for the other agents to get to him, and somebody was able to, like, stick their thumb down. And so a Vietnam vet was able to stick their thumb in there and save him. Stop it. Jeez. But Gus had these horrible scars, and he would wear those uh, the Mexican wedding shirts. And then he, you, right. see, when you walked in, you'd see these big scars. Yeah. Right. And he wouldn't hire somebody that he wasn't willing to work with. Right. So I walk in, and he, looks one, he takes one look at me and just, just goes, this guy's just some college kid. He right. doesn't know what he wants. You know, get out of here. And I said, well, Mr. Vasquez, can I show you my resume? And then during, all through college, I'd done law enforcement internships. I was very serious. And he took my resume and he looked at it. He goes, okay, let's sit down. You know, let's talk. Yeah. So then I put, like, I, know, I knew I had no experience. I just put max effort in the application process. Right. And I just owned that process. And I, I've never told this story publicly, but it's true. One of the, the parts of the application process is called a panel interview, where three old DEA agents would interview the applicant. And back at the time, there was no script. It was just throw questions right. at you to, sh- to shake you. So these old agents are throwing these bombs at me. And I'm trying to answer them the best I can. And, and I leave. I come back in and they go, hey, Rocky, you're a great kid. You're articulate. You're a hardworking guy. 
you don't know shit. Right. Right. That's the quote I remember. You right. don't know shit. And we can't give you a job. You know, go oh. become a cop, go join the military, come back in a few years, I'm happy to hire you. Well, that's not what I wanted, right? Right. So right. they give them this little slip of paper. Did what did it say? You don't know shit? No, no. no. <laughs> it just had their, it had their notes. Or their get scores. the hell out of here. Yeah. It was some little scoring, back. scoring yeah. sheet. Right. right. So they would say, go get this to Gus. So I walked down the hallway, completely dejected to Gus. And I go, he goes, hey, how'd it go? And I said, ah, not so well. They're not going to hire me. He goes, wait, let me see that. And he puts his glasses, his readers on. I see a pencil come out. And I see some erasing. And I see some writing. And he goes, no, you <laughs> passed. I don't know why they told you that. Congratulations, Rocky. And like, oh, oh no. okay, thanks, Gus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and years later, 10 years later in my career, I was transferring to Bolivia. And I went to a symposium in Washington to get trained. And the guy comes on the stage and he's looking at all the names. And it was one of the guys who'd failed me on the interview. Oh, no. And he goes, Rockwell Heron, do I know you? No, sir. <laughs> right. <laughs> Never met exactly. you before. Never saw life. you yeah. again. <laughs> it's not me. So when you were 23 going to apply for the DA, uh, did you know that you had to learn Spanish or did you already know Spanish? No, no, you didn't. And actually, when I came on in San Diego, uh, most agents didn't speak Spanish. And uh, it was a huge frustration. One of my earliest cases was a giant Bolivian case. And all the I, my job was to handle the witnesses from, from Bolivia. And they were all Spanish. Their families were Spanish. So it was a real challenge to, to not be able to speak Spanish. And uh, it wasn't until eight years on the job when I got transferred to Bolivia that actually I was trained in Spanish. And How did that, that go? Well, is a Bolivian Spanish different from Mexico? Because like in America, look, if I'm from... Texas, uh, you know, I'm going to talk with a yeah, little bit of accent. Yeah. yeah, so you can kind of tell even though yeah, different speaking, dialects. Yeah, it's like, like Spanish and versus. Yeah, is it different yeah, dialects? Well, Spain they, versus they teach, Mexico. In, in school in Washington, they took me to Washington and for five months, um, I had these, that was all I did, learn Spanish. Um, but they teach you kind of, you know, the high, high level Spanish. And, and Bolivians actually speak a, a pretty good form of Spanish. And it's funny, I have a very thick, I think I have a very thick gringo accent. But because I learned Spanish as an adult in my 30s, I actually speak. I've been told by many Spanish speakers, I speak better Spanish than they do. And what they mean is I have a, a bigger vocabulary and Correct. I use better grammar. Can I give you a test right now? Can you tell me, uh, please don't take drugs. It's not good for you uh, in Spanish. Frank, no usas las drogas. Mira lo que le pasó a tu hermano. Yeah. Gracias, me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to have to get the translation at the bottom with that translation. She said, I like you, but I don't <laughs> like, like your, your brother. brother. Exactly. Yeah, what I said is, Frank, don't use drugs. Look what you happened look, to your brother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you guys like the classic before and after drug picture. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so now you've entered the DEA, and then, yeah. what? like, do they ask you, we want you to go to Bolivia? Or do you say, hey, I'd like to no, go to no, Bolivia? No, no, no. Well, look, so... The DEA Academy then was only uh, wasn't even four months long, which surprises people. God, right? That's not but, enough time. But you're all everyone's a college grad, at least a college graduate. Yeah, they're well uh, educated. Many people have, you know, I was one of the rare ones. It, looking back, Gus had an interesting policy. It seemed like once a year, Gus would take a risk on somebody like me. Got right? it. There's a, a good, very good friend of mine who's still with DEA now, who was like the version of me the next year. Got right? it. No experience, but a good, earnest guy. And so right. Gus would say, "Okay, I'm going to give one guy a chance every year who right. didn't have previous experience." But the academy Lottery. is just basic formation, right? The job, like in every profession, realtors, right? Yeah. Right? You get your basic, you pass your license, and then you, re you another really realtor. Learn, and then, you, really, then right. you learn the job. Then you learn the job. The DEA is the same way. Right. So you come, I came to San Diego. I worked with a group of agents here in San Diego. And my first supervisor was a woman named Michelle Lenhart, who was incredible. I mean, literally devoted to the job, devoted to us. Ended up being is she a, undercover right now, so you don't have to say her name over the uh, YouTube? No, she's, she's retired. She's retired. Oh, okay. yeah. But she, became, she became the, the administrator. She became the worldwide director of DEA, the first agent ever to 
ascend up. Okay, the so people are going to know who she is. Yeah. Right. But she, like taught, but she taught me the job. Got it. Right. And she had put together a really good team of agents. Um, and it was funny. This, this is a funny story. So there was an, a female instructor at the DA Academy who had me terrified. Um, she had thrown out two of my friends. And I, I was so insecure. I thought I was next. Right. Literally. So everything I did with her. But well, they failed the Academy. They just decided you, you don't cut it. Right. Yeah, and it's very rare, but they do a little kangaroo court thing and they throw you out. And, and I was, they were my friends and, and, and they were gone. And I thought, well, I'm next. Right. So every interaction I had with her, I was really anxious. And right. I, would, I would mess things up because I was so nervous around her. So <laughs> exactly. at the graduation, my parents flew out, you know, back to, to the FBI Academy to, to go to the graduation. And she walks up, oh, are you Rocky's parents? Rocky's the greatest. We love Rocky. And I had this disassociative moment, like, wait a second. That's your phone. Frank, you violated section sorry, 182. I know. I'm sorry. I, Take I, it I, off I the table. Oh, jeez. See? You can only train him kids, so much. these days. You sorry, only, listeners. So, you can only train so, so this woman comes up. They keep trying to get a hold of me. Acting like she's my best friend. Yeah. This woman that had me terrified, the whole academy, uh, acts like she's my best friend. And she's telling me and my parents that I'm going to go work for her friend Michelle in San Diego on this giant Bolivian case. And um, <laughs> you're unaware of it. <laughs> I had no idea. And interesting. So what was interesting. So I, I was really confused by that because there were three of us who went back to San Diego. There were three of us in that academy who went back to San Diego. You're lucky. Oh, to yeah. Come back to oh, San yeah. Diego oh, yeah. they, because you could have been stuck in well, some. The policy at the time was not to send you home. It's, they would prefer not to send you back to where right, you're so not recognized. Right. No, I, I disagree with it really. Cause I was, I knew San Diego really well. Right. So having come from here helped me in the job, but they didn't have a budget. So a bunch of us from, from that academy class got sent back home. And, but there were three of us. And one guy, Pat, was a 35-year-old guy. He was 23. He's 35. Good-looking, you know, strong guy, smart. And then there was another young guy with me, Spanish speaker, native Spanish speaker, and then me. And, again, I was so insecure. I kind of rated myself as, like, the least capable of those three guys. But it turns out that when Michelle called this one at the academy and said, hey, who's coming to San Diego? And the lady described the three of us. Michelle said, I want Rocky. Because even though I didn't know anything, I, had, I guess, had created a reputation of, like, wanting to learn. Right. Right. So Michelle was okay with her. having somebody who didn't know anything, but she had confidence that she could train me, which she did. You're trainable. Yeah. So I come on the street, doing my surveillances, doing my arrests, loving life, loving the job, working seven days a week. They pay us five, and I work seven. Um, and uh, what's different back then is everybody who came out of the academy was expected to do undercover work. And I knew it would happen to me, but I wasn't ready. So they come to me. I have two months on the job. I'm growing a little beard, you know, let my hair out, trying to, trying to act like a tough guy. And they sit me down and say, hey, you're going to meet with these two guys from TJ. we got an informant who's going to introduce you. And you're going to negotiate to buy 10 kilos of cocaine. Now, I'm a guy who's never bought a joint. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I got to go undercover with two Mexican guys in, in, a, in a bar in Chula Vista, California, to, to negotiate 20 pounds of Tijuana cocaine. Tijuana or Chula Vista? The, the, the traffickers were from Tijuana. Okay, guys. Gotcha. We went to the El Torito Bar right by the ocean in, in Chula Vista off the five. Oh. And uh, I went down to Nordstrom Rack and I bought myself a leather jacket, you know, so yeah. I could try to, you know, look like an idol, look like a drug dealer. <laughs> uh, but the, the team was giving me ideas for what I could, I had to have a cover story. Right? How am I going to convince these guys to sell me dope? Right. And they were giving me all these different ideas. And I said, well, you know, I just got out of college. Why don't I pretend to be a college kid? And they all laughed at me. They said, that's ridiculous. And I said, but it's what I know. Right. And, and I'm, when I believe in something, I'll just do it. Right. So I said, I'm, I, I'm doing this. So I go meet these guys in the bar. And my story is, my name's Rocky, and I'm president of a fraternity at San Diego State. And if you sell me these 10 keys, you know, or 25 grand a key, whatever it was, um, I'll sell them at San Diego State for this much, this money, and we're all going to make a ton of money. 
And in less than five minutes, they said, come with me, come with us. And when they walked out and they handed me, they gave me a kilo in the parking lot. That easy? That easy. And, and it was that easy because San Diego State, I make this argument, that San Diego State then and San Diego State now is a wide open drug consuming market. And all I had to do with, to convince these guys was that I had the money. And it was a great story because I didn't have to convince them I knew anything about drugs. Right. It's I perfect. Just, right. I just wanted to make money. Did you arrest them or did you let them or keep them on a string? Yeah, they ended up getting arrested later. Yeah, kept them on a the string. But that was the times I did it in the cover, that was my story. I pretended to be a, a college kid. It was great because that way nobody expected me to actually know what did I was Did you carry about. the cash when they wanted it? Like who, who, who paid so them? So the, the, the other the big case with cash was 370 grand. So. In 1992, that's a lot of money. Right. That's yeah. a lot of money today. A lot of, yeah. But we were doing an undercover case with a guy from Bolivia, and and uh, it was a conspiracy case. So we didn't actually need the drugs. We, this guy had multiple meetings with us, and he was talking all about getting a drug shipment from, from Bolivia. So the conspiracy wasn't going to be the drugs. The conspiracy was going to be him actually taking payment. Gotcha. That, that overt act. Well, the overt act was giving him $370,000. So I get assigned... A, a suitcase with $370,000 in it. <laughs> and uh, so I'm in a hotel room. <laughs> you should have went to Bolivia by yourself. <laughs> I'm in a hotel room in Horton <laughs> bye Plaza. Bye. I'm in a hotel room in Horton Plaza with my senior partner who was a great guy, a stud, Spanish speaker, Steve Skaggs. And uh, he's doing all the negotiations and it's time for me to give the guy the money. And he takes my money and he walks out in the hallway and disappears. And of course, there was a team of agents waiting. Right. But I, the first thing I did was I grabbed that, that suitcase and got it back. So he went down. He went down, yeah. Don't want to, what, what if you would have got away with that money? Yeah. <laughs> what would your job would have been? That would have been, 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 yeah, been short. Started running. As soon as he gets it, just hauls ass down the hallway. A short right. career. I know. Exactly. So what happens, like, the guy um, hands you a, a kilo of Coke, mm-hmm. and uh, did you pay him for that? Eventually, did, yeah. Oh, so it wasn't no, like... Well, eventually, eventually we did a deal when they got taken down, right? Gotcha. We don't, we don't buy the drugs. Okay. We make them think we're going to do it. They show up with the drugs, and then we take so them So you down. do – how many of those would you say you did when you're in New Actually, not very days? many. Maybe yeah. under a half dozen. So, what, so now you're going to Bolivia. Yeah. So the, the, the assignments overseas um, are actually very competitive. Um, it's a great life. They train Spanish. I was so excited. I get to learn Spanish. And then um, they, they put you up in a nice, nice house or a nice apartment. I got to take my family with me. My kids got to go to private school. All of that on the government. Like, like working for the State Department. Um, so you're super undercover. No, actually the opposite. Oh, the opposite. Completely overt. Overt. Right? So I, I get signed to Bolivia, and I'm assigned to be a, an advisor to one of their police investigative teams. Okay. So we drove big Toyota Land Cruisers with diplomatic license plates. We had guards outside our houses. Every drug trafficker in Bolivia knew. Not to mess with you guys. Well, they knew who we were. They knew where we lived, and they knew what would happen to them if they messed with us. Right. But it's, that's like a ba- it's a bad business deal. If they mess with you, then they— Well, exactly. And, yeah, and, they're and not going to— They want to do, do business. They don't want to do murder. Well, and what people don't— a lot of people don't understand it. It's just a business. Right. Right. I mean, it's a social harm. It's terrible. It's tragic. Right. But it's a business. At the end of the day, right. these guys are about making money. And, and what, if there was any kind of, if there's anything to say what's good from what happened to Kiki Camarena, which is hard to say anything good came from that. But the DEA reaction and the U.S. government reaction was so immediate and severe. And we went after so many. We were going after these guys. We're still going after. There's still a guy in Mexico who we're trying to extradite. Still. And, and Camarena was murdered, you know, in 1985. Right. But the, the, the reaction to the Camarena's murder, in my opinion, is what cur- even currently protects DEA agents around the world. Because I'm sure there's plenty of drug traffickers who are plenty angry at individual DEA agents. Right. But most of them understand, yeah, okay, fine. You, I, I, like in Bolivia, I, it's easy to kill me. I don't right. have eyes in the back of my head. You know, I'm a foot taller <laughs> exactly. than the average Bolivian. And easy to they know where I live. You look Bolivian. How, t- how tall yeah. are you? 6'4". Like- 6'4", and you're trying to be undercover? No, no. I'm, they say, no, I was not undercover. It's, it's over. So, so how does that work? you got but, the D well, agent with his family. But you, these guys that you're working with, 
were you ever nervous that one of them would get compromised by the by somebody because they might go up to their family and go, "Hey, listen, we know you're with this guy, and we got to oh, you no, got to inform it, it's us. A, it's a real. It's tell a real us what's risk. going on. But DEA is actually very good at what it does. And when we work overseas, we put together these these teams of local cops, and we put them through polygraph and training and. Those teams get a lot of resources and a lot of support. And in all these countries, a lot of people here think that everybody's corrupt in these countries. Well, there is corruption. There's corruption here. There's corruption in any country. Mm -hmm. But there are also people trying to serve their country. So what happened in Bolivia was by creating these specialized police units that worked with us, co-led by us. I had a Bolivian major who was my counterpart. Um, We gave these guys a salary bonus. We gave them job security. We gave them training. We gave them resources. We gave them political support. We, We gave them an opportunity to actually fight back. And, and they knew, those cops knew that if anybody in that unit went dirty, everybody was getting kicked out. That that whole right. lifestyle that they built was over. So there was an enormous pressure right. yeah, not internally. on them right. to protect Check themselves. themselves. Right. Right. Don't screw around and blow for us. They're much more at risk than I was. Right. Were they cops or were they military? Cops, or both? All cops. Okay. So all they cops. have a Bolivian police academy? Yeah, they have a national police. They have one police, um, and uh, we worked. I worked with different units. And one, I had at one point a unit of eighty cops that I ran, and, and simultaneously a group of twenty cops that I ran. And those guys would have stood on their heads for me. I mean, we had such a, a, a bond. How, how are the Bolivian people in general? Oh my God, I love Bolivia. I love the Bolivian people. I love Latin culture. Um, you know, the officers. Law enforcement is not a prestigious career in Bolivia, okay. so the people who enter tend to come from the poorest levels of society. And these guys are making nothing. I mean, I'm living in this mansion, you know, paid for by the U.S. government. My kids are going to yeah. private schools. And and the guys out doing the operations and patrolling with me are making nothing. 1%. I mean, literally nothing, yeah. right? And yet we were, we were peers. And they would invite me to their homes, and I would go. Birthdays and marriages and christenings and funerals. And, I, and these guys, I'd show up, and these guys have this little, you know, brick hut with a tin roof, and that's their home. Wow. Right? But we played soccer together. We, we, we were our brothers, and we protected each other. And, yeah, you uh, are brothers. Oh, you still like, real brothers. Do you still know them to this day? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I've got about 20 guys that I keep in touch with. I went back to Bolivia in 2019. My daughter graduated from college. And my, so I, my, when I came back from Bolivia, my girls were 9, 7, and 5. And actually, Spanish was their first language. I put them in a, in a Spanish-speaking school there. Your, um, girl, all, your daughter speaks Spanish? Well, they did. Okay. You know, when they got back here, they, they lost right. it mostly. My oldest just picked it back up. My younger ones are trying. But okay. at that time, they were, it was shocking. They would probably remember it pretty quickly. They understand pretty well. But they were little, you know, blonde, blue-eyed kids who spoke flawless Spanish. It was funny to see people reacting to them. They right. just didn't expect it. But um, my daughter, my oldest, graduated from college. And to help her recover her Spanish, mm-hmm. I said, look, I want you to go back. I'm going to reward you with a trip to Bolivia. And I have friends who run an amazing orphanage there. And I said, why don't you go work in this orphanage for a couple months? And, you know, and, 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 and by so the way, cool. if you don't recover your Spanish, you can't come home, right? right. <laughs> so, but I went down to visit her at the end. At, when I went, the president of Bolivia was a guy called Evo Morales, who is allegedly a notorious drug trafficker, right? I say mm-hmm. allegedly right, in quotation right. marks. But um, he had a terrible problem with the Bolivian police officers who had worked with us. So when when... In 2007, 2008, there was a political problem, and DEA, Evo Morales expelled DEA from Bolivia. DEA got kicked out. Wow. Are Everybody they still kicked out? Why did they get kicked out? This is a good story. Well, he couldn't control them and, and because of, he allegedly had these connections. Oh, alleged, I got yeah. you. Right? Yeah. So there was, I think. A conflict was, of interest for the president. It was a little self-serving decision right. to send DEA packing. Okay, gotcha. So 
But what happened was, tragically for me, these cops who had been so self-sacrificing and committed to working with us okay. now now lost their jobs. On the, well, they kept their jobs, but they were sent off to remote regions. Their careers were prejudiced. They almost put some in jail, accusing them of betraying Bolivia. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were good guys, and most of them rebounded. But in 2019, this guy is still in charge. And when I showed up for this visit, I just showed up for a few days to pick up my daughter. And a group of cops, senior guys, like all these junior lieutenants when I was there, are now, you know, like majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels. They organized a private banquet for me. Really? Which was nuts. Yeah. So I went with my daughter, about 20 of these guys. It was, and if anybody had found out, they would have been just hammered. Yeah, but, they, but they gave me a plaque, and they were just all – it, was, it gave them a chance to kind of harken back to those days when we all were actually able right. to do the job. But that's the level of bond that I built with those guys. Did you – when was the time where you switched from being on the streets to being in the jungle, the Bolivian jungles? Oh, How was that like? the second day. Second day you're in a jungle. Oh, no. It was ridiculous. So I go, I go to <laughs> – I go to language school. I, st- I learn Spanish. And then they, at the second day I'm in Bolivia, my cops hand me a rifle and said, let's go. What kind of rifles did you get? It was an M16. And, How and many it, clips you guys carry? A lot. You can never have too much ammo. Right. Over eight? Uh, no, probably six. six that's, that's a lot. But they're bigger well, than 10 the, round The magazines. military realized they have to carry about, I think it was like 13 to 16 yeah, I don't know. magazines to, I don't know. for a good firefight. And we didn't. In, but that's in war. But the environment in Bolivia, Afghanistan. thankfully, at the time. We didn't really have uh, a hostile environment. Gotcha. Um, it wasn't like Colombia, where you had like a serious hardcore right. rebel movement actively targeting the police. Bolivia, the police, you know, had a lot of control. The drug traffickers were kind of keeping it low key. Got it. They didn't um, have the power yet like they do. Well, they, they, it, if they'd harmed us, right, or took us on head to head, there would have yeah. been a lot of reaction Big against problem. them. So right. again, bad for business. Right. We're not that good. As hard as we try, we're not that good. Right. And so just, okay. Yeah, yeah, they're going yeah. to take some dope here and there. They're right. going to arrest people here and there. But right, exactly. leave them alone. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like kick the beehive. Don't kick the beehive. Right. Seriously. Exactly. Don't kick the beehive. You kick, you kick the beehive, and you got a problem. Right. A good um, analogy. Right. But, but I did that for six years. And, and when I'm in schools, I, I talk about those years in Bolivia because I'd been on the job for eight years. And in Washington, when I was training up to go to Bolivia, every single meeting they said, you're going to Bolivia as an American advisor to help Bolivia with Bolivia's problem. <laughs> Everyone called it Bolivia's problem of cocaine. Okay. I thought it was Bolivia's problem too until I got there. And the group of cops, we started doing the operations and, and uh, they don't make cocaine in a centralized location where it's easy to find, right? The, the Bolivian countryside is littered with drug labs everywhere, small ones all over the place. Um, and these plastic pits out in the jungle full of acids and solvents to make the cocaine. Jeez. And, and often, and, and these things are hidden, we have to go find them. But often uh, the farmers would call us because all of a sudden all the fish in the river would die or all the fish in a lake would float to the surface. And that was a clue that somebody poisoned it. But um, over the years when I would find these labs and we'd set them on fire because that's all we could do. And we saw the environmental destruction and the poverty and the corruption and violence. And Bolivia is a beautiful country with beautiful people. But it can't escape because it's not their problem. It's ours because the cocaine that was going to come from that lab was going to be sold to Americans. And the, the money used to build that lab came from Americans. Right. And that's something that just shocks me. So I've been teaching publicly since 2007 and I've been teaching that it's our problem. And yet. Who else says that here? It's our problem because we're the consumers. Right. It it all starts with demand. Right. All the money starts with us. Supply and demand. Supply and demand. And yet nobody important is saying that. Right. And it's real. I can't believe I don't understand it. It, it, It's amazing to me. And yes, Mexico and, and, and Colombia and Bolivia do need to do a lot more. Right. But when do we take responsibility for the fact that it's American drug buyers 
that are financing all this. Yeah, so there's you, a big conflict because right now in San Diego, they let people do drugs on the street. No one's busting them. No one's doing anything. They're shooting heroin. They're doing coke. Well, not heroin. Heroin's gone. It's all fentanyl now. It's there, all fentanyl. There's no more. Yeah, there's no more heroin. I mean, statistically speaking, there may be heroin here and there. So but, how do you, how do you shoot fentanyl? You liquefy it. You know, and most people don't inject it because it's too dangerous. I mean, you, you, when you're injecting a, a quantity of fentanyl, you, you can't measure the dose very well. So they typically will snort a powder or they'll, they'll burn a little powder on a piece of foil um, or they'll swallow a pill. Um, so, there may be some people injecting it, but that's pretty risky. So at, at what point did we go from cocaine, which you get a limited quantity of cocaine. Bec- it's, a, it's a crop. You have to grow poppies and go through a big process. And what point did we go from that? to this fentanyl? Because it seems like it... it Basically, jolts. pharmaceutical versus street. No, I'll tell you the progression. So so cocaine remains a big problem. It's never gone away. Um, it's just the other problems have grown up around it. Um, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia still producing, you know, unbelievable amounts of cocaine designed for Europe and America. Um, we were... Methamphetamine first showed up in the U.S. in the... I think in a big way in the mid '80s here in San Diego, right? Vista, San Marcos, the bikers. Remember, they used to have those labs blowing up. Yeah. We, you know, in real. I'm not going to. I'm not going to name the community because I sell homes for a living, but there's a couple communities that are known to be the actual mothership. Well, of crystal North, meth. North County, San Diego, in the mid '80s was very rural. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's shocking to see how it's developed. And they went and, and they were making meth out in these rural properties. And my brother was a DEA agent in North County going after the labs. Um, but when, when Washington finally woke up to the threat that methamphetamine was and it took them years, we were warning Washington. San Diego DEA was warning Washington. And they just, meth, we don't care about meth. We want to go after coke and heroin. What's right. this meth thing? It's going to go away. Exactly. Actually, a very important guy, a very important <laughs> guy came from Washington to visit San Diego, sat on my desk, big fat butt, you know, sitting on my desk. And I've been on the job a year. And somebody goes, sir, well, what are you doing about meth? And the guy laughed. He goes, oh, meth's not a problem. We're not worried about that. This, this yeah. genius guy, right? You know, right. it's such a problem that even as realtors, we have a meth lab, we have a meth, methamphetamine disclosure. Sure. Was this you ever used as a meth, meth lab, lab because right. it's such... Yeah, the chemicals are so toxic. It's, it's so highly toxic. You get hazmat there. If, yeah. If so today in the U.S., the meth labs aren't that big of a problem because we took steps to control the chemicals, right? So if you go into the pharmacy now and you want to get... You can't get a Sudafed. You got to go behind the counter. So... Because people were going and buying just huge amounts of this drug from the pharmacies and then converting it to meth. So we passed some very effective Costco, laws. Yeah, we yeah. passed some very effective laws to, to try to stop meth manufacturing. In my opinion, all we did is we offshored it to Mexico. Right. Yeah, we won the fight here, but now we shifted it to the cartels yeah. who have since industrialized it. Right. And, and I describe it as a tsunami. There's a tsunami of meth that's coming up from Mexico and, and going into our country. And I, you can look at the numbers of the border are just inconceivable. There was a one tractor trailer uh, that got seized in Otay Mesa a couple years ago. It had 17,000 pounds of meth in it. Now, 10 years ago, that would have been like our national seizures for a year of meth. Right. And now it's in one tractor trailer. And then... Um, and 17, that's to, it's like Breaking Bad. No, no, no. Breaking Bad is small time. Right. <laughs> These are factors. Well, that, th- this is... Fact. They caught one 18-wheeler. How right. many of them get right. away with well, it? Well, this, this, we call ourselves border rats. Those of us who work they the border. sniff those things. And- well, no, just our general consensus, um, and nobody knows, but the consensus is that we get about 10%, right? That's sort of, if you talk to anybody that works in law right. enforcement on the border and you say, how much do you get? No, most of them will say, how ah, 10%. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's a made-up no. number. But, but, it could but be it, 1%. But it's, but it's, it could be 50%. It's, it's, it's not anywhere close to 50%. Oh, oh, okay, no. gotcha. And I say that because you guys are businessmen, right? San Diego's got a very tight real estate market because there's so few houses, houses. for sale. Correct. Right? Right. 
it's it's that's basic economics. Right. And what's shocking about these gigantic meth seizures, 17,000 pounds, 5,000 pounds, 2,000 pounds, these seizures happen and the price doesn't rise. There's so much supply. There's so much elasticity in the Correct, supply. That's what I'm talking about. That the price. And it's fact, kind of factored in like returns at us. At, if you, if you return something at Costco, it's already built into the price. Like they probably factor in, okay, we're going to lose this much. Shrinkage? Yeah, shrinkage, whatever. We're gonna f- I don't know. Well, I, I, but I remember I worked at Costco and it used to be Price Club back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Remember? Yeah. yeah. And do you remember, Mark, people would buy pallets of Sudafed? Yeah. We didn't, we didn't know why. But you'd see an actual pallet of, of Sudafed coming out all the time before they put a uh, stop to well, that. Well, no one even knew. So no. that, but that meth, that, that meth that was being made with the, the Sudafed here in, in San Diego was very poor quality. I mean, it's, it's, it's not good quality. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, let's say maybe a good batch of that 70% potent or something. Um, so you get plenty of high off it, but it's got a lot of contaminants in it, and it's, it's just not So pure. do you know how to make it? No. No, I, I never wanted to work with the labs. My brother loved that, and I, I, I was happy. Remember they're bo- they're the, booby-trapped. They're poisonous. It just was a nasty business. And baking and – baking – breaking <laughs> bad. Baking bread. Baking bad. Baking bad. <laughs> bad. Baking bad's your wife. Breaking bad. <laughs> just kidding, Candace. <laughs> so in Breaking Bad, the guy would make the meth and it would and have a little tint of blue. You know, that was like – that was like his signature. Do you have guys that have manufactured their own where it's labeled that well, this comes from this lab? So, Is it that competitive? No. Um, okay. So what, what happened was when we offshore, we successfully repressed the production here in the U.S. Yay, victory. In the U.S. Yeah. yeah. So and we offshore it. went to Mexico. It all went to Mexico right, where course. there's no controls. And, right. you know, by some estimates, and I'm, I don't know for sure, but by some estimates that I've found publicly, 25 to 30% of Mexico is effectively outside federal government control. So you have massive regions of Mexico without any effective law enforcement. Right. And they, they run factories and they import masses of chemicals from China and India and they make a meth that is 99% pure. Jeez. So the stuff coming across the border now is 99% pure. Now, when I'm going into a school and I'm talking about meth, I still, I lie basically and I say it's, it still has all these other bad chemicals in it that it used to have. Right. I give myself some artistic license to, you know, I want the kids to understand right. it's nasty. But... A pound of meth in San Diego 10 years ago was maybe $15,000 a pound, right? Wholesale. Got it. So if I'm doing an undercover case or I want my informant to buy a pound of meth, it was actually quite a chore to get DEA to disperse $15,000 right. for me to buy that pound to advance my investigation. Now, what you want to guess what a pound of meth call, costs wholesale in San Diego? 10? I can, I can guess. A thousand bucks. A thousand bucks or under, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. And it's so, it's so cheap that they're not even cutting it like they used to. We right. arrest, my office arrested a guy who was selling pounds of meth. This is the border office about four or five years ago. When they arrested him, he had a fanny pack with small bills. And the arresting agent goes, what are you doing? He goes, I have to make change. He's selling <laughs> pounds of meth and he's having a change. Oh no. Yeah. And then uh, so cheap. another case of mine, we had this informant who could buy dope from anybody. A fascinating guy. Um, he could literally, like, you know, he could buy meth from anybody. And uh, he meets a guy, he meets a, a woman at the car auction in, in Otay Mesa. And she, I guess she's attractive. And he's talking to her. And, and uh, at some point, he goes, well, I'm in the business, oh, which, no. which means of course, drug business, right? So she goes, well, so is my dad. And he goes, well, where's your dad? Oh, he's up in San Bernardino. And he sells, he sells product. And this guy goes, well, you know, can you give me his number? She goes, sure. Oh, gosh. So he sends a WhatsApp message to this guy he's never met in San Bernardino and says, hey, I'd like to buy some meth. Okay. 
And and this our guy goes, well, can I get a pound? And the guy up there goes, well, actually, it's not worth it for me to send a pound. I got to send a courier. And things are only a thousand dollars. Right. Uh, at the time, maybe fifteen hundred dollars. And uh, the guy goes, it's not worth my trouble. Can you buy twenty? Oh no. And so our guy goes, well, yeah, sure, of course, great, incredible, yeah. Explain that to your DA and, boss. And, uh, <laughs> and and the guy up in San Bernardino goes, well, show me you got the money. So our guy Googles a picture. He was Google's $35,000. And he takes a picture of $35,000 off Google and he sends it to the guy. And the next day, the guy sent a driver with 22 pounds of meth. Never met each so other. So let me no ask you a question. Wow. We had the sheriff's department pull the car over and we seized the drugs. So, so I mean, I, wait, wait, hold on. This is kind of funny. Go ahead. If I wanted to buy crystal meth, like we're in San Diego, it's what, I don't know, one o'clock. Today? Today. Like if I, how long do you think it would take me to find not yourself. knowing anything, because I don't know anything. It would take you. You don't know the lingo. You don't know. Yeah, it would take. It would be hard. But somebody, somebody who knows the business, it's not hard for them at all. There's just so much of it for sale in San Diego. Okay. Wow. Okay. Now, when did fentanyl come in? So, uh, in 2007, um, a, a DEA assigned me to our, our prescription drug abuse unit, and uh, I, I didn't really want the transfer, but I didn't like the guy I was going to be working for, so I asked for a transfer, and they put me in this new unit with no training, typical. And so I had to do self-training on what prescription abuse there was. And at the time, 2007, a massive Vicodin abuse. Right. Or oh, Nor- yeah. Norco is a generic <clears throat> version of Vicodin. And, and it, there were people taking – you're supposed to take maybe eight or ten of these pills a day. Right. I was arresting numerous people taking 40, 50 a day. Yeah. And they were, they were taking 40 or 50 because they couldn't get more. I mean, they would be taking more. How right. come that doesn't kill a person? Well, like 40 or 50 a day. Well, the, sure, the, the dangerous die. part of a Vicodin isn't the opioid. It's the actual the, the Tylenol. And so in a, in a, in a, in a low-strength Vicodin pill, it's called a 5-500. It's 5 milligrams of, of uh, hydrocodone, which is the opioid painkiller, and it's 500 milligrams of Tylenol. Wow. And it was licensed. This is important. This is, so people need to understand this. So when the government licensed hydrocodone 50, 60 years ago, whenever it was, they realized it's too dangerous to put out in a pure form. If we put it out in a pure form, people are going to snort it, inject it, whatever. Right. Right. So by law, it has to be in combination. So it's, it's typically with, you know, uh, acetaminophen, right? And, per, and oxycodone and, and acetaminophen is Percocet. So that's what a Vicodin is. So Vicodin and Percocet are painkillers, but the, by law, they have to be mixed with a non-opioid, like a Tylenol, aspirin, ibuprofen. Um, so large quantities of acetaminophen are toxic to your body. Correct. And when I started this work in 2007, I, I researched, and the medical literature was telling me that four, gram, four grams of— How many milligrams is that? 4,000. So 4,000 milligrams, eight tablets, would be a toxic dose. Right. Right? And, and yet I'm arresting people taking 50. And I would tell doctors, like, well, that's not true. That can't be possible. Well, there they are, right? <laughs> so the body's amazing. So if some people, so you, if any of us took that much, we'd die right now. Right? right. We'd die of an overdose before the acetaminophen killed us. But very quickly, the acetaminophen would probably wipe out our livers. But some people are just a miracle and they could take anything. I've, met, I've arrested people who, who are like, they should be science experiments. Like somehow they function taking these unbelievable quantities of stuff. <laughs> so, but in 2008, all of a sudden we discovered OxyContin had gotten here in a big time. Now we all knew about OxyContin from the East Coast and West Virginia and Florida, but 2008, some sheriff's deputies all of a sudden saw OxyContin appear on the street and we became aware very quickly how bad OxyContin was. Well, OxyContin is a pure form of the drug. And that's the tragic. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. So the company Purdue Pharma. There's a great show on. I think it's on Netflix called Painkillers. Um, if people want to find the history, it's a great documentary about it or a docudrama. But um, 
Oxycontin was a pure form of the drug, and that's why it went people went nuts for it because you could, in fact, inject it or snort it or heat it up and inhale it. Is but it a pill? It was a pill in multiple strengths, and the company lied to the government and lied to the country and said it's not addictive. And so right. it got licensed. It's one of the most addictive drugs ever licensed, right? <laughs> so after how many years? 15, at least 15 years of massive abuse, finally the U.S. government moved and forced the manufacturer of OxyContin to add some products to the pill to make it harder to abuse. Got it. You can't really snort it as well. It's harder to burn it. It's noxious smells. And I predicted and we saw an immediate shift to a different form of oxycodone called a roxycodone. It's a 30 milligram uh, tablet, instant release oxycodone pure. Um, and it's blue. It typically comes in a blue form with an M and a 30. And so all of a sudden, the M30s, the Roxy's, became the pill of choice. So I began chasing these people. Those are pharmaceutical grade? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, okay. it's a pill you get from a pharmacy. Gotcha. It's generic. It's not very expensive and it's a very powerful painkiller. And we were chasing these criminal organizations that were using forged prescriptions and, and bad doctors to get right. these things. And they were paying maybe 2 $3 a pill to get them illegally and then selling them for 30 bucks. And a huge profit, huge profit. Around 2016, the cartels in Mexico, this is my opinion, but the cartels in Mexico saw how much money Americans are spending on prescription drugs. $30 a pill, you can't make that kind of profit selling anything else. Right. And they started faking the pills down in Mexico. And the first ones we see is the fakes were ridiculous. I mean, the color was coming off and they were crude. It was like laughable. Like, oh, okay, yeah, like you an fooled, M&M. You fooled me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a fake M&M or something, uh-huh. right? Yeah, you fooled me, right? Well, very quickly, they figured out how to make these things. And initially, there was the reason heroin. And then they discovered that fentanyl um, is, gives people the same high as heroin. It's 50 times stronger than heroin and much cheaper. So for economic reasons, they, they were started to use fentanyl. They bought fentanyl from China, and they mix it in these pills. So that was about 2016, and we started to see this just terrible scourge. Of, uh, people call them perks now, or the M30s, or the blues, or the Roxies. And the first case I was involved with was in 2016, and it really got my attention because I was asked to be um, security for an undercover deal. And so we have an agent. Posing. What does that mean? Well, so we have an agent posing as an undercover. He's, he's, he's going to be undercover as a buyer. Well, we've got security. So I'm one of the guys watching to make sure he doesn't get hurt, doesn't get kidnapped, doesn't get robbed. What were you wearing? You know, just civilian clothes, jeans and a, you know. And how do you, how do you be slight? Because other people are going to be no, watching. No, you're in a car, you're in a parking lot, you put up a sunshade. You know, There's no us. counterterrorism with them? They don't have no, any? No, we, we look for that. Okay. We look for that. Got we it. show up way in advance and we look to see. Right. You know, we have helicopters sometimes watching out for us. And, and uh but you never know, right? So we go in prepared. We always go in prepared for right. the worst. And for thank God, very, very rarely does anything bad happen. But we go prepared every time for the worst. So my job is to protect that guy. So I'm on it, man. Mm-hmm. I take that work very seriously. And I had been in the briefing. And, and in the briefing, they said, okay, we're going to pay, I can't remember what it was, $15,000 or something to buy three blankets. And they explained that the pills were being, there's Mexican tourist blankets, those thick, colorful blankets. No. Right. So these pills were being sewn in the black hems. Really? Okay. And, yeah. And that's how they're being smuggled in. And so <laughs> the, the, the deal is we're going to buy the drugs so that we can order up a larger amount later and arrest these people later. So I'm watching, and, and the bad guy shows up, and they talk, and the bad guy takes one blanket, hands it to our agent, takes a second blanket, hands it to our agent, takes a third blanket, and then looks in and just pauses and then hands a fourth blanket. And I'm watching this and go, what the heck just happened here? You know, we have money for three. So we get back to the office, and I go up to the undercover agent. I said, dude, can you explain what happened here? The guy gave you four. The guy's like, yeah. I was like, Did you pay for four? He goes, no. And I, I, I couldn't understand. Nobody gives away a kilo right. of cocaine. Nobody gives away a pound of meth. Why did some drug trafficker just give away a thousand of these pills? 
And so I started doing some research on my own, and, and I came to the conclusion that these pills cost the drug cartels maybe a penny to make. Yeah, yeah so it didn't matter. So it was $10 or whatever. You know, that right. cost them nothing. Right. And 10, then they're selling, them, they're selling them, you know, $10 wholesale, $30 on the street. So wow. there's never been a drug in history. If people, profit if, margins if are people huge. don't understand why fentanyl is the problem, yeah. it's the cheapest, strongest drug ever manufactured right. that offers the greatest profit to the drug traffickers. Right. And there you have our reality today. That's what I mean. In the, in the uh, cocaine war, there's no more going, getting Afghanistan, got the seas, it goes to Mexico, you got these jungles cooking it. If you do fentanyl, you don't have to do any of that. A little you just tiny, get, you little just get tiny, the drugs from China. A little tiny underground lab somewhere can churn out millions of these things. Yeah. So if we know the United States government knows that we're getting these drugs from China, why would they not talk to China? Bingo. No, we did. I mean, we have talked to China, and China actually stopped sending fentanyl directly. Um, there, one of my friends was over there negotiating with them. China has done, at least on the surface, mm-hmm. has taken some steps, um, but. The reality is that a whole bunch of the chemicals are still flooding in. And so I don't think a whole lot of actual fentanyl is coming out of China. The, the precursor chemicals right. right, are coming. And these are industrial chemicals. And so controlling those industrial chemicals is always hard because they have right. multiple uses. Correct. Right. And, and there just isn't that much law enforcement. And, um, and the, the, the sad thing is, you know, we try to block the sale or transfer of certain chemicals, but these cartels have PhD chemists, the Breaking Bad guys working for them. Right. So if we block some chemical, well, like, okay, we'll just synthesize. We'll get the other lesser chemicals and we'll, we'll manufacture that too. Got it. So in my school presentations, I argue that the drugs today are cheaper, stronger, easier to get, and more socially acceptable than ever before. And not good. Not good. <laughs> and, and honestly, right now, there's not much we can do about the, the how strong, cheap, and available they are because the cartels have us outgunned. Because that, that first case I worked on was 1,000 pills at a time. Four years later, we were seeing 100,000 pills at a time in cars, and now we're seizing a million pills regularly. These things are coming across the border by the millions. So that would that would go back to talking to China and saying, how come you're allowing this to leave your well, docks? Well, I don't think they are. Well, there's cr- massive corruption in China. Well, listen, if, th- if that much is coming over— well, I mean, there's there probably somebody knows somebody in China then is right. is scamming is scamming yeah. and it's right. not they the have government. Their own, they it's have like their own cartel. No, yeah, it, it may be exactly. people in the government, but there's there's this corruption. Right, there's corruption. Rocky, let me let me just ask you about this because I know of your work and you and I have been pushing for like a real substance abuse prevention campaign to be put into the schools. And other than what you're doing. I just don't see that happening. No, that's not true. There are, there are, there are other people that work for the county and, and, and local government who are out in schools as well. I'm not alone in doing this. But I mean, you, we're, I'm just talking about San Diego. This is a national issue. I right. mean, I, well, there's 50 states. So I started teaching. My teaching started accidentally. I used to be afraid of public speaking. I started out life as a very people, – people laugh. When mm-hmm. I say to people I used to hate public speaking, they're like, dude, we can't get you to shut up. Right. <laughs> you guys are probably asking me to shut up so you can talk today too. Um, but there was a time in life when I, I didn't like talking publicly, but, uh, in 2008, I discovered that a lot of young people in San Diego from the best families and the best communities, you know, Poway, Carmel Valley, Del Mar had started abusing Oxycontin in high school, got terribly addicted to it. It cost $800, $80 a pill. And these kids were needing five, six, seven pills a day. Well, you're a teenager. How are you getting that much money? You know, young women were selling their bodies and people are selling drugs. And then DEA, we don't, we don't arrest drug users, right? That's not our, our mission is to arrest the drug traffickers. But too many people, unfortunately, to, today, you know, they'll sell drugs to buy their own. So these kids from families much better than I was, I mean, parents better than I ever was, <laughs> are on the streets addicted and selling Oxy. And we'd arrest them. 
The parents or the kids? No, no, the kids. I'm okay. just saying these are these are kids from really good families. Right. Not your traditional hardcore yeah. drug using or drug selling communities and, and families. But there they are. And so, you know, we bring them back to the DEA office and, and you process them and it takes hours and hours. And I was always curious. I'd always ask these people a lot of questions. And I would often volunteer to drive people from the DEA office to jail. Like, you know, they, they sit in the DEA office in the cell for a while and we process them and interview them. And then you got to take them to jail. And I would often volunteer because that drive is fascinating because they're actually willing to talk. You'd be surprised. Sure. I mean, hardcore drug dealers would perfect, like, hey, Rocky, first name, we would talk. And I would ask these young kids, like, hey, when did you, because I wanted to know, when did you start? Who gave it to you? Why did you think it was safe? Did you ever get any warnings? Every single one of them, male and female, started sobbing, sobbing because they're going to jail, they're gonna go into withdrawal, their lives are in flames. And they, at some point, all said, Rocky, if only somebody would have warned me. If only somebody would have told me how bad it was gonna be, maybe I wouldn't have started. And at that time, I look at him and say, would you actually listen to anybody? Because I didn't think anybody would. So this is going, I'm seeing this every day, you know, in my work, these kids who didn't get any warnings. And then my, my fifth grade daughter, her class invited me to speak about my job. So I go to her little elementary school in a very nice neighborhood. And at the end of my talk about my job, I say, any questions? And the kid goes, what's math? And the little girl goes, what's heroin? And my heart sank. Yeah, I don't want yeah. my daughter's classmates asking me about math and heroin. And I said, well, why are you asking me? And the, the little boy goes, well, my uncle's in prison for selling math. And the girl goes, my aunt, my aunt, died, my aunt died from heroin. <laughs> like, and I went wow. to the school and I said, hey, what kind of, because I like naively right. assumed the schools were doing something. And the school goes, we're not doing anything. So I said, can I come, you know, teach? Speak on behalf. And that's when I realized we're failing our kids. And that was in 2007. The did they have the D.A.R.E. Pro- I was like a little bit involved in the D.A.R.E. program. Did they have the D.A.R.E. program back then or well, did Dare, they stop it? D.A.R.E. still exists. Um, D.A.R.E. is still around. Um, D.A.R.E. was big, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And then somewhere along the way, my understanding is, and I apologize if I'm making a mistake here, my understanding is some social scientists decided to look at D.A.R.E. And they, they came up with a study and they said, look, we, we really can't prove that D.A.R.E. works. Right. Ergo, I heard the, I heard ergo the same thing. it doesn't work. Yeah. And schools in California dropped. Right. A lot of schools just dropped D.A.R.E. And and I'm not I'm not advocating for or against Dare, but Dare was better than nothing. Right. You can't measure it because you can't go into people's house and privately say well, if this affected th- th- you. There so. are people who think they can measure the unmeasurable in our society, right. which is well, really irritating to it's me. It's true. You yeah. cannot measure that. So it's very complicated to measure it, right? right? And 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 think about this. Dare was designed for a certain place in time. The drug problem has radically evolved. This is what people right. understand. The drug problem has radically right. And it's accelerating the involvement of the drug. So D.A.R.E. might have been good, actually, for what it was designed for. But the drug problem just kept growing. Kept going. So how are you going to blame D.A.R.E. for that? Right. But um, D.A.R.E. wasn't replaced. That's the sin. That's the sin. Right. D.A.R.E. Was not replaced. Well, that's what I'm saying. Wasn't replaced. When, okay. But I, there was nothing to replace but, it with. But hold on. No, I, maybe, maybe a program more like mine. But yeah. I'm, involved in, I'm involved in the schools. And if I go to – I talk to the kids in the schools, in the high schools. You know, I daughter who just got out of high school. And, and I'm on the campuses – and there's nothing that's embedded in the curriculum. Correct. Uh, what I'm saying by embedded in the curriculum, something where every single teacher is on the same page to have something to do with saying, hey, if you're, if you're going to go out this weekend, remember, or even in, even in math or science or whatever it is, something embedded within the actual curriculum that fights drugs because – there's way too many kids doing drugs. I mean, they're do, they're st- despite all this stuff, are still getting high. Well, the yes, there are about 500,000 school kids in San Diego, right? right? Um, roughly, and some 750 schools. And I figure the the age group for my type of like in your face information is I actually think it's probably like 11, but 
typically schools 12 and above, the mm-hmm. schools are like, okay, yeah, you're pretty strong, but, you know, we get it. That's about 250,000 kids. Right. Now, I reached 40,000 last year. I reached 40,000 kids. There's other people working hard doing the same thing I'm doing for the county, and there's, there's National Guard guys doing it. The U.S. Attorney's Office is doing it. Hyde is doing it. We're getting out there, but nothing organized, right? right? And nothing systematic. And that's the frustration. Like, how bad? And what I tell the kids and what I'll tell your audience, you know, when I started my DEA career, it was under 10,000 Americans a year dying from overdose. But that's a lot. When you meet the survivors, that's a lot of sadness right. and grief, 10, you know, 10,000. That's a year. Today, it's almost 10,000 a month. Jeez. It's climbed to 10,000 a month with 300 a day. Uh, and, you know, I tell the kids, I have an hour presentation, and I say, you know, that means about a dozen Americans will die during this presentation. And you see the little eyes kind of flicker because they don't, they can't comprehend that. But um, I think, I don't know how bad it has to get, I don't know how bad it has to get, Mark, before our society says, you know what, I don't care if you don't think it's a good idea or if it works for the kids, we're going to give the kids the information they deserve. Right. And we're still not doing that. So I'm very grateful to you guys. I'm very grateful to Dr. Gothold and the County Office of Education. I'm very grateful to the school districts that use me. Um, with the kids. And, and I used to fight. I mean, I used to think, you know, I could get into all the schools. I've accepted that I can't. For whatever reason, individual schools, individual school districts are resistant to this type of education or my style. Um, but there are plenty of school districts that support me. So I, my job now is to give the best information I can to the kids in front of me. And I had 500 kids in a middle school in front of me this morning. And they were little jerks at first. They weren't really, you know, too excited about being in an assembly with me. And I, I look at them and say, I don't care if you like me, but you're going to respect me. You know, they're, they're all shocked. Like, look at this guy talking to us. Oh, and no. at the end. <laughs> How old were they? Uh, six and seventh. Okay. Six and seven. Yeah. So, but it was funny because the, I was, I was in full board. I had about 10 minutes left in my presentation. The principal comes up and, and says, you got two minutes because somebody had given me a mistaken ending time. And I looked at him and said, no, I'm sorry. I can't finish. And actually, I got an argument with the principal right in front of the kids. Uh, and he goes, okay, take the 10 minutes. Hmm. And when I was done, he was like, oh, man, I'm so glad. You know, because my last 10 minutes is when I talk about vaping and, and right. marijuana, which is actually, you know, what the school, the, the drug problem the schools see is the vaping and marijuana crisis, which is enormous. And the schools tell me that if I ask a school in San Diego, what's your drug problem? They're all going to say, oh, uh, vaping and marijuana. I answer, no, it's actually some of your students are willing to take whatever party drug their friend offers them this weekend. Right. That for me, because that's going to kill them. Because it's their friend. That's why I say it's not a drug dealer. It's your friend that's going to give you a pill or split it in half and unfortunately, you might get the half that's loaded with fentanyl. Or, or you're just particularly reactive right. to it. Do, hey, Rocky, can you touch upon something that I think is really interesting in your career and it has to do with education? Is that you took it upon yourself to do a bi-national campaign where you also do the same kind of lectures in Mexico. And, and what was the reason you decided that you felt that you had to go outside of the country and also speak to kids in another country? Well, it's... it's or, or TJ or wherever. It, yeah. Well, I, I feel sorry for kids everywhere who are suffering from this. And in 2011, so I've been teaching about four years. In 2011, the U.S. ambassador to Colombia told his executive team that he wanted... Because there's a bunch of U.S. embassy kids in schools in Colombia. And the U.S. ambassador told his executive team, look, I want somebody here to protect our kids. A lot of drug abuse in Colombian society in the clubs and... And so it just happened that, that a friend of mine was the head of DEA Columbia, Jay Bergman, and Jay called me. He goes, dude, get on a plane. And so Jay brought me down to Columbia, and uh, I, was, I just spoke at the, the embassy schools, right, these fancy private schools. I, didn't want, I wanted to go out and do the, the public schools. But anyway, I spoke at these private schools, and the embassy didn't think this was going to be a big deal. 
Well, I've been in Bolivia. I know what DEA's reputation is. Everybody, they, when I'm teaching overseas, the kids all think I'm James Bond. <laughs> you know, they, they've seen Vin Diesel or whoever is a DEA guy. On, yeah. And, and they, are. they attribute to me all of those skills, which I have none, right? I, <laughs> and I don't lie to them. And say, you know, I, I lie to them. They don't think I'm James Bond. But um, I knew that me teaching in these schools was going to be a big deal. And in fact, when these kids went home and said, oh, my God, this DEA guy came in. He told us all this stuff. Parents started calling the embassy. Why isn't he coming to my school? Why isn't he coming to my school? And so the press office, the public affairs office, got very upset because they weren't warned. They just right. get like deluged with all these very important Focal. people calling right. and saying, hey, why didn't you tell us? Right? They look bad. Gotcha. So my, my head of DEA dragged It's because you're a hit. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. And, and so they dragged, they dragged me up to this public affairs office and they're like, how long are you going to be here? I'm like, I'm going home in two days. Oh, you know, all right, we had all these opportunities for you. And they said, well, you do a couple radio interviews with us live in Spanish in Colombia. Oh and I started gosh. to sweat. I'm like, oh, no, yeah. I, I don't want to do this. And I look at my boss. His boss is like, thumbs up. You can do this. <laughs> so two hours later, I'm in a little sound booth like this. And uh, there's a phone. And the engineer says, pick it up. So I pick up the phone. And I'm on the air with some Colombian radio host. And, and uh, Patricia in the afternoon. And so Patricia goes, hola, Rocky. Bienvenido. And the first question she asked me was, Rocky, wait a second. You know, we all know about DEA. You come down and you arrest cartel leaders and you burn down cocaine, you know, grows. What in the world is a DEA agent doing at school trying to help kids? And my answer was very simple. I said, Patricia, who is going to have more credibility on the drug issue than a veteran DEA agent with kids? And she goes, oh. And that right. Was Makes, Makes sense. sense. Makes sense. Makes them, sense. Right? Yeah. So actually I had huge, huge support from people in Colombia. And, and, you know, but it's all, it's all personality driven. So when that boss left Colombia, the, the, the next boss didn't, didn't believe in it, didn't bring me down. Got it. Right. So it's it's all everything I've done. I've done about a thousand of these conferences now in sixteen countries. It's been amazing. But it's all word of mouth support. It's all word of mouth, and I don't advertise, and I don't have a big marketing campaign, and and it, I just and my I have very high profile friends in Mexico. Last week I, I went to Mexico for a drug congress on Wednesday, and then my friends organized six more conferences for me. So I did seven in Mexico in four days last week. And Jeez. what was amazing this and this is You're really on interesting. Tour. I was on tour, tiring, and I put a lot of emotion into this, but. Previous trips, I would always speak at like an individual school or university. This trip, the Mexican Social Security Administration, which IMSS, they hosted two of my conferences in their facilities. And on Saturday, I spoke at one of their federal police academies. And that's amazing to me. I'm still trying to make sense of that, that these very high-profile people in Mexico are, are putting their names and reputations behind my work in a way that nobody in the U.S. is. Right? So I'm getting I'm getting more traction in Mexico than, than, crazy. than I am here. And, and, and I'll, I'll say something else. There's another truth that, that I speak. Or it's my truth, right? If you ask an average American, hey, who's responsible for the drug problem? Oh, they'll say the cartels or, you know, the corruption or whatever. If you go to Mexico and you ask somebody in Mexico, hey, who's responsible for all the drug violence? The Americans. They're going to the say the, the American drug violence. Right, right. Like everybody in Mexico Stop buying it. and we don't have to deal so, with it. So I go into Mexico and I say that. And I say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's people in my country who are paying for all that violence that you have to live. And I said, and I tell people this, even though I've never bought an illegal drug, and I never will, I feel personally responsible as an American citizen for what our country's doing to theirs. Yeah, and Mexico needs to do a lot more. I'm not, you know, I'm not giving them any slack. They need to keep fighting and fight right. harder. But, but we're not, we don't even have the conversation about reducing drug consumption here. No. Any conversation we have, guys, is about treatment and recovery, which is all incredible. We need lots more of that. But if, if we're not going to stop every new generation from running into the addiction path, how can we ever hope to get out of this? Well, the only way to do it is to change society and change the way kids 
Change our L- culture. Change our culture. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. Change the culture, the way the way people look at drugs. So instead of instead of the kid going, "Hey, I brought some, I got some rainbow fentanyl. I got these pills." That kid gets ostracized from the other kids and go, "Don't talk to that kid," or you know, instead of saying, "Oh, he has, oh, who has the drugs?" You know, that's a popular kid. He has to be the unpopular I don't kid. Know. Seems like a really hard thing to solve. Well, how many how many kids do you have to reach? I've reached two hundred thousand kids. How many kids do I have to have helped to make it worth the trouble? I was in Mexico. I was All at the, of them. I, well, they, they need more of you. Like, well, so okay, okay. So there's people. People tell me to my face, prevention and education doesn't work, which really pisses me off. And I, and I'm like, okay, explain. And well, they can't because it's just something they've heard. Right. They actually haven't thought about it. They go, oh, it does, we all know it doesn't work. Dare didn't work. I'm like, well, I'm not dare. I, what you I, cannot measure it like that. They, they're so well, stupid. It, but it's even your definitions, right? So I, I would say to people, like, what do you mean by working? And I'm like, so if you, do you think I think I get every kid to stop using drugs or never use right. drugs in my presentations? Of course not, right? I hope for some of that. But every single child who leaves my assemblies knows way more about the consequences of drug abuse right. than they did before. Isn't that a win? 100%. Empowering the kids with information? So Got to do it. I think that this whole drug abuse or drug prevention campaign has to be at the same level that they used for cigarettes. So used to have the Marlboro guy on TV smoking a cigarette, and it was really cool. And even if you watch some of the movies in the 80s, people were smoking in the office. And now it's such a stigma to smoke a cigarette. Even everybody goes, oh, they're smoking. Well, that's, that's a good It point. has to be yeah. to that degree. You, yeah, but when you smell weed, no one says anything. No, but, well, that's a different— Well, no, but it, it, what you guys are saying is completely true. In 1960, roughly, that's when the U.S. decided to start taking youth smoking seriously. And if you look at the stats, it was crazy. It's like half our teenagers smoked, oh. at least occasionally, in 1960. It was just this really big thing, habit in the youth. And if you had told somebody, an average American in 1960, hey, we're going to get kids in America to stop smoking, they would have laughed at you. Right. They would have said, that's ridiculous. That's just something kids do. Right. But you know what? Over the next 30, 40 years, we all got it growing up. We were taught this is what smoking does to you. And eventually, we got to a place where we almost, almost eradicated cigarette smoking in mm-hmm. our youth. Well, the tobacco companies are very mercenary, bad people. I mean, their business strategy has always been to get kids hooked on to nicotine. I use the example in World War II, the tobacco companies, you know, patted themselves on the chest. Hey, we're donating cigarettes to our millions of soldiers and sailors. Oh, Can yeah. You? You're great patri- patriotism, right? Right. And my dad was a general practitioner here in San Diego, over by San Diego State. And as a kid, his, his patient population aged, right? So, and I would run around with my dad and do his house calls and stuff. And I would meet these old World War II vets who were dying from emphysema, dying from strokes, dying from lung cancer. Oh, it's a habit of these, you know, it's a consequence of these cigarettes. Right. I saw this, the horrible suffering these guys went through. Um, so, but since our kids in the U.S. don't want cigarettes, what they've done is, and, and they've very effectively replaced the cigarette with the vape, the liquefied nicotine. And Juul Company came along and made it really cool and attractive, and, and our country's never been the same. So we've got, we've got a, a huge epidemic of, of teen and preteen nicotine addiction that we don't want to talk about. And that's, that's But the nicotine addiction cur- is different from the actual, all the carcinogens that are so, in. So, yeah, you can argue, you can make an argument that, it's not, that vaping it's, is safer for the, the body than smoking is, right? And there are some health consequences to vaping, and actually right. nobody yeah. knows the long-term. Yes, nobody knows. But the guaranteed short-term, addiction. Of course. And to me, that's the tragedy. And we all, everybody listening to this knows that nicotine is one of the hardest addictions to quit, period. And we have a, a huge generation of kids who've been hooked on it. Now, Oxy, Oxycontin was licensed in 1995, late 95. 
that started everything where we are today. That started the whole fentanyl crisis. That, that's the starting point. Oxycontin or Vicodin? Oxycontin. That changed everything. Because Vicodin, you could abuse, but you couldn't smoke it. You couldn't inject it, right? Oxycontin is the one that really legitimized pharmaceutical opioid abuse in a way that had never existed before, right? And I remember years ago when I was teaching public about some DEA thing, and a guy in the back of the room, this is 2008, guy comes in the back of the room and goes, hey, Rocky, what about the heroin that comes in a blue pill? And I arrogantly laughed at him. I said, heroin doesn't come in a blue pill. Well, I was wrong. That he was talking about these Oxycontin. Oxycontin or Roxy's, which I, at that point, didn't know anything about. But the argument I'm making, and I'm very long-winded, is it took us 30-some years to get to where we are today. Right. And unfortunately, it didn't take us decades to claw our way out. So anybody who, who criticizes what I'm doing and what the people I, that I work with are doing, saying you guys aren't getting any results, I don't know what they're expecting. Right. Because it's going to take— 30 years. It's like that's it what I'm saying. It's going to take about— Yeah, but if we don't start today, Mark— Correct. Where are we going to be five years from now, ten But years that from now? should be, since we already have a track record with nicotine or, or, or cigarettes— we have to follow that same track and go, okay, we're going to start off slow with ad campaigns. And it has to be a national well, push, not just our, – Our politicians uh, don't want to spend money. That They have their own projects, right? So all that tobacco education was put on the backs of the tobacco companies through the taxes. So it was very easy for the states and the federal government to, to collect huge amounts of money to pay for all that tobacco education. It's called TUPE, and there's still huge money from that in California to teach tobacco prevention. There's no – you can't tax fentanyl. You can't tax meth, right? So there's no ready revenue source right. for this. And so doing what I do in any, some kind of a systemized way, you know, and, and across the nation all the schools is going to be very expensive. But when you look at the, the toll that drug abuse is taking on our society, what every person in addiction is costing society, the, the emergency room visits, the overdoses. That's so worth the investment. It's it pennies on the dollar. Do you right. think that a lot of the homeless crisis has to do with – loose laws that virtually allow people to do drugs on the streets. Funny you and should ask that. Yeah. Am so, I right? Yeah. So the homeless themselves, if you ask They do them, anything they want. Well, but if you ask well, the homeless, and people do ask them lots of questions, okay. but if you ask the homeless, and I've looked at these studies, if you ask the homeless, they will self-identify drug abuse as like number one or number two reason that they're disaffiliated living right. on the streets, right? That data is easy to find. And in California, we, we basically decriminalized everything, Prop 47, change. There's basically there's very little law enforcement can do for like bottom level drug dealing. Um, so it's made it very easy for people to sell into the homeless population. They can steal up to $900 a day and not get arrested. So they can steal as much as they need to get the money. Drug right. dealers sell them small quantities, which will kill and get them addicted. And it all operates sort of outside the law. But um, it's not been legalized. It's just, we just sort of like throw our hands up. But the question I can't find the answer to, and, and I want I personally believe that most of our currently homeless started using drugs in middle or high school. Oh, great. And they didn't die. They didn't get on a statistic. <clears throat> they just put themselves on a path of life degradation that, you know, 10, 15 We say that later. all the time. And the, there's no counselors to see it. And if the teacher has 30 kids in the class and Johnny's being quiet or he looks emotionally distraught, the teacher's just going to say, you okay? And the kid's going to say, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. But that's the guy you have to watch for. He needs to see a counselor, but there's not enough counselors. There's not enough teachers that have good observation skills. Well, let's go back to the funding source. So if based upon those statistics that you're identifying, that the homeless people identify as having substance abuse problems is the number one thing, then why can't the educators access the monies that are given for homeless prevention, which are in the billions and billions of dollars yeah. for their drug abuse 
campaign because the consequence of kids using drugs, as you just highlighted, results in homelessness. So we, so educators should be able to access homeless funds for substance abuse campaigns. That would be where I would start because there's billions of dollars for that. And you're not alone in that. I mean, San Francisco's got a, just a, a nightmare now with the homeless. And I, I'm on social media, I'm tracking some people who are really active in, in trying to, like former addicts and stuff who themselves have, have now become advocates for the, the current homeless. And they're all saying the same thing. They're saying we're just completely missing the boat. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a substance abuse problem. It's not a housing problem. It's not problem. a housing problem, it's a, right. It's a substance abuse problem first. And until you address the substance abuse, you're not going to get these people out of the So rut. the homeless fund should go to education well, then. some of it. That's not. A lot of it. Well, it's we have not. a mayor that said housing first. So basically that means if you make a project and you want to take this person off the street and put them inside of a house – there's certain rules of getting in this house. You cannot be addicted. You have to get off drugs. Yeah. So the guy stays on the street. So housing first means you can't have any restrictions. Right. So you're taking a heroin addict from the street to a house. What do you think is going to happen? Well, look. Sometimes He's still kids, a heroin addict. Sometimes kids in schools think that I think drug users are bad people, right? And I actually play that Mr. Mackey clip from South Park with the guy who looks just like me saying, you're bad if you use drugs. Don't use, bad, yeah. don't use drugs, MK. Um, and I make the point, you know, that kid, the kids, I don't, I don't think drug users are bad people. I think they're beautiful people just like you are making terrible choices. Yeah, that's that, what they that are. That eventually are going to tear them up. But uh, no, we're, we're just unwilling. I, I, think there's, I, th there's, I think we have a societal stigma against drug users, which is really unfortunate. And I think we have a societal stigma against prevention education. Important people have just got themselves convinced it doesn't work, so why spend any money on it? And it's just insanity because – all the statistics are bad. Homeless numbers are increasing. Home, addicted homeless are increasing. Correct. Overdose is increasing. And the only solution, the only possible thing we could tweak right now is to get prevention education. Right. But what people don't understand is, and I call it the tragic moment, the three of us might take a drug, a Vicodin or an Oxy or fentanyl or meth or whatever. We're going to have three very different reactions. We have different brain chemistry, different physiology. Two of us might hate it. One of us might love it. Right. Or two of us might get high, one of us might die. It's just, we, nobody can tell before you start. Got it. But some people, when they try some drugs once, are never the same again. They're addicted. Right. Or they're, they, they, well, oh, something happens to their brain. Their right. brain goes, wow. And, and so yeah. these kids, okay. Yeah, one these time. kids I was taking to jail, 2008, 2009, 2010, who were telling me, oh, I wish somebody would warn me. Also, all said, and this is, a, I'm, thinking, I'm glad you brought this up. I've forgotten about this. So I would ask them, what drugs did you use? Right. Did you start on Oxy? Like, no, I was, you know, weed and you know, I tried all this other stuff. And then I smoked an Oxy and they put it on a foil and heated it up. I smoked an Oxy and I, I quote, I found what I've been looking for. And I couldn't believe it. They all said that. I found what I've been looking so, for. And they, basically what they were telling me was they were addicted psychologically the first time that they knew they were going to keep using it. And, and Is that the same case with fentanyl? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Can you burn fentanyl like oh, that? Oh, yeah. They heat it up on foil and inhale it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, – and, and what, so the, what the public doesn't understand is, you know, you may have had some experience with an opioid that made you itchy or warm. You didn't like it. Well, the guy next to you, that may be the most incredible experience he ever had. Right. And so one of the things I tell kids is you don't know what's going to do to you before you try. So, so don't so try. Please don't try. Right. You make it hooked. But, but we live in a society where these drugs are basically decriminalized. They're right. essentially free. Right. I mean, the, these pills, right. these fake fentanyl pills coming from Mexico. you like the story. So I was teaching out in Mexico in January. And there's, there's a thing called, they call the tunnel, CBX, where you can go into the T1 airport yeah, from I, San Diego. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's super it's cheap easy. to fly to TJ, and I love it. So I'm flying back, and uh, I walk up to the Uber stand, and 
I don't like how Uber cheats the drivers, right? I don't recommend the public do this, but I'll go to an Uber driver and I'll say, hey, it's going to cost me this much, but I'll just pay you cash. Right. Because I'd, right. like I'd like the driver just to get the money. So I'm talking to the driver of this SUV and he looks at me and we're looking, we know each other, right? We know we know each other, but neither one of us is like, like pegging it. Right. So I get in this guy's car and we're driving away from, from the border and I, I go, ah. And I go, hey, dude, did you ever work with DEA? And I see his knuckles tighten on the wheel, and he's an old informant of mine. Oh no! And it, we were, it was just meeting. We we're so out of context. Oh like, gosh! So <laughs> scared the shit out of him. It did. It totally right. did. So I, we started talking. It was fascinating because right. I never, I never talked to this guy outside the context of, right? You know, our official relationship. Was this CI? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so it was a really interesting conversation. And we were talking about different coworkers of mine, which ones he thought were competent and which ones weren't. And it was we, we kind of coincided on that. It right. was interesting. But I asked him like, what are the prices? And this was, you know, earlier this year. And he told me that he'd seen these pills as low as 50 cents. Oh, my god! But they gosh. were typically 80, 90 cents per pill. So the drug dealer can buy that pill that will kill your kid or, or change their life forever for under a buck. Oh, my god! And then they sell it to your kid for 5 bucks or 10 bucks. They're making So what is the freaking wholesale price on that? Well, well, Pennies. The wholesale, the wholesale price is 50 cents. I mean, that's okay, the wholesale, wholesale price. Okay, gotcha. Right, at the border, across, in San Diego. Okay. In Mexico. No, the manufacturing price is what yeah, I think Frank was saying. It's, it's a penny or two. Yeah, a penny. So, so right. they used to sell these things for 10 bucks. Now they're selling them for a buck. They're still making... Uh, it's insane proportion. Insane. Right. You, you yeah. can't do the math. So if you lose a crate, who cares? You, you don't care. No one gets killed. Right. You literally the don't. driver they, gets they, to live. You know, don't. like, remember, when you would deliver four or five pounds of Coke and you, and you didn't make it to your destination... You're going to have to pay one way or another, right? right? right. And just yeah, you lose a shipment of cocaine, right. you, somebody's going to pay. Right. You lose, you lose a, a shipment, shipment of, of this, they go, just keep making yeah, it. Just make more. Right. Yeah. That's a better business plan. You well, that's to, why we're stuck with this. Right. It, it is, again, fentanyl is the strongest, cheapest, most profitable drug, in my opinion, ever seen. How much uh, fentanyl do you see that's pharmaceutical grade on the street versus manufactured by the drug dealer? None. Zero. Um, before, before this current fentanyl crisis... But fentanyl is a miracle drug. I mean, just to be clear, pharmaceutical fentanyl is a miracle drug. Used right. every day in surgery. Every day. Treatment. Right. Right. Um, typically, it's people a, with cancer, they a get pain a, pill. a pain patch. No, not pill. Well, there's a very, oh, very okay. rare. Typically, a, a pain dermal patch, patch. Right. Because it's so potent, they designed this patch. So right. it would slow, so, soak very slowly into your skin. Or lollipops. It, yeah. Okay. So you couldn't swallow the whole lollipop. You had to lick it. Got it. Um, I always just chew the crap out of them. I can't just <laughs> suck a lollipop. But that's what the public would get access to. <laughs> Why didn't you have a friggin' fentanyl? I never had lollipop. a fentanyl lollipop, but I remember that. Yeah, but it sounded like you were just talking. That no, you remember that uh, commercial? How many licks, licks does it, it take, take to get yeah, to uh, a yeah. whatever? Center, like, yeah. yeah, you're going off message here, Mr. Powell. You're going off yeah, message. What the hell? <laughs> so we had people in the day who would abuse. They would fake prescriptions to get. Some people would fake prescriptions to get more lollipops or right. more pain patches, right? But those are expensive. Yeah. This costs nothing. nothing. So there's no market. I'm not saying there isn't some sort of abuse of pharmaceutical fentanyl. Right. But that is not the problem. So doctors so are out of business. A hundred percent. Ninety-nine plus percent of the fentanyl that's on our streets is clandestinely manufactured in Mexico or here or Canada or came straight from China. So the DEA is not interested in pharmaceutical companies because they're not no, – No, no. Projection no. DEA continually regulates, monitors, monitors them. But that's but not – But what you're finding out is that – they're not taking it from the pharmaceuticals. They're just making it on the streets. Right. <coughs> and, and the, the so the focus is more on the okay, uh, so Mexican of this, drug Okay, so of the curtain street drugs, crystal, cocaine, weed, whatever it's yeah. out there, how many of those contain fentanyl? Well, there are a lot of people. Fentanyl comes typically in two forms from Mexico. It comes in the pills. All different Xanax, Van, you know, Valium, Vicodin, or these Roxies. Various different forms of the drug. and Or powder. And it comes across in bricks that look like they're kilos of cocaine. Now, 
the drug dealers are aware that our population has become somewhat aware of the pills. And so one of the strategies that I find just absolutely evil, um, they will go, the drug dealers will go to a, some doctor and they'll get a prescription of Vicodin or Xanax or whatever they're supposed to get, right? They'll get that prescription and they'll sell those pills. Then they go to their drug dealer and say, I want to fill this bottle up with the fakes. So they'll get a prescription for Vicodin in their name, right? And they'll fill the bottle with the fakes made with fentanyl. But then they come to you or your kid, and, hey, Mark, or your daughter, hey, Dolly, look, you know, I, these are legit. These are from a pharmacy. You can trust me. Right. And our kids go, okay, yeah, look, these, that's a new prescription came from a pharmacy. So they're, I mean, they, they're that deceitful to our kids. But yeah. a lot of our population has been scared away from the pills. And so they're going to the powdered drugs. Well, fentanyl comes as a white powder. A lot of people are dying because they're buying this white powder that's either they think it's cocaine or they think it's meth and it's fentanyl or it's mixed with fentanyl. And I, when I retired from DEA two years ago, we didn't know for sure why fentanyl was being mixed into coke and meth. Um, since then, maybe I kind of just did a brain dump. It doesn't, make, make it doesn't really make sense. And so we don't know if maybe it's accidentally mixed in. I actually think yeah, – Bad labs. I, well, I, I think there's two – one explanation, maybe two. The, the drug dealers measure their customers. And if you get some young kid who doesn't really know what he's doing, he, he wants to pay you 100 bucks for a gram of coke. Right. And you can sell him a gram of fentanyl that he thinks is coke or has a little coke in it. Right. Right. And yeah. you're going to make it 100 bucks on something that of costs you 50 cents. Call it whatever you want. Yes. And, or, or It's a pound of coke. Yeah. It's not. Or, or people buy it and, and they find it or, some, or somebody sells it. doesn't even know what it is. They just right. look at, oh, it looks like meth and so they just they die because they don't know what they're doing. So I've heard that kids, infants, toddlers crawling on the carpet have been exposed to fentanyl and have died. Is that true? Well, people are – there's, there's, there's a lot of paranoia okay, about yeah. fentanyl, right? And when, when it first showed up, we were panicking about it. I can't – it'll, it'll like jump off the table and kill you. It won't. Right? And what I tell people, don't panic. If it's there, treat it like a dangerous substance. Put on gloves. Put on a breath mask if you can. Put on glasses. But you don't have to, like, you know, decontaminate your home. And call an expert if you want. But it's not something – it's not Ebola that's going to jump off and kill your whole family. Just leave it as it is and, and clean it up carefully. Um, the fentanyl that comes in from Mexico today is not 100 percent pure. Um, I'm, I'm told the powders was 10 percent. Now the, the potency is climbing towards 20, which is really scary. And the pills are just a few percentage potent. So typically just touching – the fentanyl is not, you're not going to get, you're certainly not getting an overdose. Now, I think some people can get an exposure and I think we need, we, we make that mistake. You know, like some of our law enforcement officers, you know, they'll be arresting somebody or they'll be searching a home and they have an effect on fentanyl and all these experts tell me, well, that, that's not possible. They can't be exposed to it. Well, you don't know what it was. You don't know how much they got in their system. Right. But it's not an overdose, right? Feeling dizzy right. because you're exposed it's not to it. It's not, you're not dying gotcha. from it. Right? No CPR involved. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of cops, I've seen that on YouTube and, and shows where they have a cop arresting someone. I remember it was spe specifically a sheriff, and he starts to go, like, oh, my God, something happened. I don't know if that guy was faking it or not. Well, I, but it looked like he had some type of reaction. Yeah, and, it, you know, at some of the cases, it could be a psychological thing. I think there's right. some very legitimate cases. There's yeah. one in particular uh, that I'm aware of. Because you hear, like, three grams of it, or not grams, but— well, if you inhale, it's, it's, if it's, it's on your skin. It's very it's hard for it to go through your skin. Fentanyl right. does not absorb well. But if you have a cut, right, or if you touch a mucous membrane in your mouth or your nose right. or it gets in your eyes, so it can get in the body very quickly. Um, if you breathe it in, so if you're, if you're searching somebody and you pat them down in some of the powder and you breathe it in and you've never been exposed to it, to me it's not unthinkable that you could have a reaction. You could, you could feel some effect. Wow. But there's a lot of paranoia that's, that's really uncalled I got a cop question that people ask, so I'll ask you. When you're an undercover DEA and you're an officer and you're in a situation where someone pulls out a bunch of lines of cocaine and just goes, here, do a line, basically testing you or weed or whatever, 
Could you do a line? Uh, no, I never would. No. I mean, Could you without if, getting in trouble from the if, DA? If someone were threatening to murder me or something, if I right. didn't, now well, I'd have to make a decision, right? Right. But, but you know. And has I that ever happened to you? No, not me. And, okay. And, and, and has it happened to anyone you know? Oh, it has happened to people. Um, and what do they do? Like I, training days. Right. I want to know. Most of them, you know, like I said, the higher level, the higher level people we're going after don't use it. This yeah. is the great tragic irony, right? The cartels in Mexico. Don't who, get higher on help supply. They, they won't work with people who use it. People right. don't get that. They glorify it. You can't trust them. Right? They're untrust. You're not reliable. Of course, you can't rely. On I mean, them. if there's one business in the world where you're you're going to hire reliable people, yeah. if you're a drug cartel, <laughs> right? I mean, my God, they're handling millions or billions of dollars in, in product and business, and you're you're not going to trust somebody who's a user. You think they have an HR department? <laughs> they do. Yeah. Actually, they do. They, <laughs> they have they have medical insurance. They have pension funds. You got to oh, put yeah. in your application. Oh no. Wow. Oh no. <laughs> Probably pretty good at it. So but I so do it. so the typical undercover guys, and I'm not, I'm not an undercover expert. That was not my strength. I had to do a little bit of it. I right. never. Com- do you have to take acting lessons? No. No, but there were guys who loved it. I mean, their guys were incredible. They would. How much weapons it. can they carry? Were they, were they they'd go full bore just. Were they were they back? I didn't carry a weapon when I was undercover. Um, I had guys protecting me. Um, I had friends who did. You know, who carried off. I one good, very good friend of mine was in Cleveland, and he did a bunch of undercover. Big white guy looked like a biker, um, but he was doing undercover. And one of his deals, he was buying dope from some really, really bad gangster guy in Cleveland, which has really bad gangsters. And they go meet, and the guy comes up, and he he pats my friend down. He goes, "Give me a hug," and he's patting him down, and finds my friend's gun. So my friend pats him down and finds his. Okay, we're good. Right, exactly. I mean, it's funny. You're drug dealers. You should be packing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, we're good. Yeah. And they did a drug deal. Right. Um, but uh, no, and that scenario has, has happened, but typically it's- it, it That's more in Hollywood, right? Yeah. And I think most I think most undercovers would probably say like, screw you, dude. I'm, you know, I'm here to buy. I'm not here to use your product. I'm not going to do it. Have you ever been in a gun battle? No. Thank goodness. Good. Yeah. Uh, there was a plane in Bolivia that was, that came in from Brazil to pick up a bunch of coke and, and uh, was trying to take off and I might have had a- yeah, I, might have, might, I, I don't know. I might yeah. have to do something Look at the tires. Yeah, exactly. to prevent it from taking off again. Exactly. But no, and, and, and something else people don't understand. You know, if there's a shooting, it's, a, it's because we made a mistake. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah, and so, exactly. so we're actually, DEA is very good at what it does. They train us well. We learn well from other agents. And so the vast, vast majority of our cases, like 99.9%, right. there's no shootings because we did our job well. Correct. It's like Secret Service. They always always go before the person comes in. So in San Diego, we have multiple law enforcement agencies, as as with all over the country. And every single police department has their own narcotics unit. So how does the DEA supersede or or work together? together? How does that whole thing work out? So DEA was was really innovative. And and when it was created, they created a narcotic task force because the guys in charge realized we need to leverage. So San Diego, actually, they're about to celebrate their, their 50th anniversary. Um, but we DEA brings in local detectives, San Diego Sheriff, San Diego PD, National City, Chula Vista, El Cajon, La Mesa, Oceanside, Carlsbad. Everybody sends detectives to the centralized task force. And so if there's any kind of investigation in El Cajon that has a connection to Carlsbad, we've got a guy, a Carlsbad guy, right? right? And then DEA pays those guys, um, pays for their cars, their phones, their travel. Their, so it, it empowers these local agencies that aren't resource rich. Could tap it. into all of DEA's resources. That's good. So, and that's everywhere. We don't work anywhere in the country that I'm aware of without that type of arrangement. Now, San Diego PD has a bunch of detectives in narcotics task force. Right. One, of my, one of my good friends is, is a sergeant in charge of one. They also have a street team right. at San Diego PD. And the street team is more focused on that lower level, dealing in the homeless population, dealing in the schools and stuff. The higher level stuff typically moves into the narcotic task force with DEA because DEA has the deep pockets to pay for the travel and for undercover work. So, so you communicate with each other. 
Oh, constantly. Okay. Oh, no, constantly. Like, yeah, hey, we're, we're going to do a drug raid. We just want to let you guys know. Here's what we're doing. No, well, we have we have systems to prevent. It's called blue on blue. We have systems right. to prevent that yeah. where you have two groups of cops exactly thinking the, the others are drug dealers. Exactly. Yeah, That used to happen. So I'll ask you something. Since you've been with the DA for over 30 years, what do you think is the solution for this drugs to coming over? How, how, do, how do we really stop it? Because you said they can't measure it. You're, you're trying to prevent in prevention. My opinion, Frank, in my opinion, we can't stop it. Yeah. So, so we need. So, I, I, I'm, so why I want, don't we make it legal? Well, I want, no, oh, oh, oh. I want to be very clear on this. I totally believe in the law enforcement mission. I absolutely believe we got to keep the pressure on the drug traffickers. And I think it's not the solution. Okay, the solution is changing the culture that wants to use it. Because as long as this is my argument, as long as somebody wants to buy it, there's going to be somebody, one way or the other, step, stepping up to sell it. Right. Of course. Right. Now, the whole legalization argument is quite, quite interesting, because. Those ten, I spent 10 years in DEA's prescription drug abuse unit. Those were all legal drugs. OxyContin was a legal right. drug. You needed a prescription to get it, but it was available. And our country lost its freaking mind right. on Oxy. Vicodin was a legal drug. People lost their minds on Vicodin. And that's what I think the general public doesn't quite get. You and I, we may be able to use it once, and oh, I'm not going to use it against some people. Once they try it, they're, they're going to do it. Again. I used it. I was on, a, I was on a Vicodins because of my back. But, uh, you know— when I took it, I couldn't couldn't go to the bathroom for like three days, not to be specific. Yes. But and I'm like, no friggin' way. I'm I'm well, you, you get constipated. I'm like, I can't take there this. Was a, there was maybe, <laughs> I don't remember what it was, 2016. It, it didn't really work that well. Like I took it and I felt Ooh. like, okay, but. That's you. Yeah. It, to right? me, it but was somebody like. Somebody else could have exactly uh, the opposite. I didn't feel you don't like have this, that addictive personality. Yeah, I got lucky. I don't have that big, oh, I feel yeah. euphoric and. I was like, shit. You just I, constipated. I, yeah, I couldn't shit for three days. Well, I don't, you should just take, you I don't remember what year greens. it was. I don't remember what year it was. I was eating greens. I was healthy. But I want to say maybe 2016. <laughs> I think it may be as far back as 2016. During the Super Bowl, there was a 30-second commercial for a constipation pill. No way. Yeah, and one of my friends, I, I don't really pay they attention to it. on purpose. No, 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 no. Okay. No, but this this pill was for opioid you know, induced constipation, what do they call it? Right. I can't really call it. But there's a there was a pharmaceutical drug being advertised at the Super Bowl. And those commercials okay. cost a half million dollars. Oh, way more than that, bro. So how many Americans are constipated from opioid consumption? Oh, that all is, of that us. <laughs> from pharmaceutical opioids. Right. They, that another, the Super Bowl. That right. another pharmaceutical company is coming out and saying, okay, we right. got a solution for right, you. Right. We're going to sell you another I'll bet you it's the same uh, manufacturer. How, bad, how big does the problem have to be? Right. For the, <laughs> okay. So just based upon what you just said, how big does the problem have to be? If our government is not understanding that this is a big problem, apparently what I'm getting is they probably do. Why aren't they giving us the resources in the schools to educate the kids? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. This is like, are, do they just not get it? I don't know. I, I think about quitting. I mean, honestly, it's, I, I put a lot of emotion into this. Right. And I'm getting kids. I'm just starting a guy. I had my first presentation of this current school year. Start with this this morning up in Solana Beach. Um, I did 200 in San Diego last year, and I, I most of the time I had two two little girls come up to me today crying, sharing with me pain that they're living right now from somebody's drug abuse, and um, that's like a daily thing for me. So I'm getting these beautiful little precious kids, you know, coming up sharing their pain with me, and, and there's no solution. Yeah. I, well, and I actually had to go to therapy because you know I I was of at a, I was at a I was at a uh, elementary school in San Ysidro, and I finished, and, uh, and they were letting me talk down to the fifth graders, and this. 
little girl, a bunch of kids came up and there's a little, these little kids will come to talk to me, right? Shake my hand or tell me some story. And then there's kids who come up and they wait, they lay back. Those are the ones that really want to talk. I have learned to harden my heart. It sucks. I see them. I'm like, oh no. They wait for all the other kids that they come up and share some nightmare story with me, right? Well, I'm a cop, you know, I'm a fix it guy. Like I'm going to go fix that problem right now. So this beautiful, yeah, or maybe arrest or, yeah. Uh So this little 11 year old girl comes up to me and, and, uh, she wants to hug me. So I hug her and, uh, she whispers, thank you. And I said, why are you thanking me? And she goes, you taught me the abuse isn't my fault. It's the beer's fault. And she shared with me that her father's, you know, currently abusive. And the school officials were on the other side of the room and they were watching her. You're like, give me your address. I, my thought yeah. was, yeah. where does he park his car? Right. right. Where does he live? Because I won't go have talk right. with dad, like right now. Like, yeah. I'm free right now. Right. Well, I can't do that. Right? I'm, I have that mo- that instinct. Of course, you want to kick the guy's I ass. I want to kick the guy's ass. Um, so what I do is I take a selfie with right. the kid and um, I share it with the school district. And I get the CPS. And I, said, I said, well, I'll let the school district. I, said, right. this, I, I don't even know the kid's name. I mean, I, right. I just, so I take a picture and I share it with the school district and or the school. And then, then it's up to them to, you know, unless if the abuse isn't like immediate and ongoing, I won't necessarily betray the trust of the kid. Right. I'll just tell the school, hey, this child needs. But in that so scenario where it's ongoing abuse, the kid told right them. Right now. Then it's like, oh, no, she needs help right now. Another girl in San Ysidro, another San Ysidro school, a little girl comes up to me crying, beautiful child. And she goes, I have a t- brain tumor and my stepdad won't stop smoking weed around me. So this little 11-year-old girl knows that, that her, their stepdad's weed smoking is harmful for her, has asked him to stop, and he won't stop. Yeah. I mean, you hear oh, these stories. Where's that are, guy go park his car, please? Yeah. Right? That's what I wish you can just go and take care of him. Well, there's other countries that like that. Singapore yeah, you just and the die. Philippines. The president of the Philippines just said, hey, it's open season on drug dealers. Yeah, I'm not advocating for that either. I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for a small— <laughs> No, but he did. He, he, he got rid permission. of them. For the I, public I know, I know. to shoot and drug and, dealers. And anybody, but anybody that compares our culture to anywhere else in the world is missing the boat. We're unique. This is, a, you know. Why can't we get ideas from other countries? Are you, oh, you're one of those <laughs> guys? We're the best? We're blowing it on no, so many levels. No, I'm not saying we're the best. I'm just saying we have cultural dynamics. We're the worst. We have, no, we're not the we worst the, either. Well, people well, still want to come here. Wait, hold on a second. I'm not talking about people want to come here. I'm talking about statistics. Oh, yeah. Who has a bigger drug addiction oh, no, in the country? We do. We're nobody. Number one. Number one. Who has a bigger murder rate be, without a war? Well, one of the one of, one of the things I do in I my presentations, I show pictures of my talks around the world. And one of my talks, I got a picture of these cool group of young guys in Honduras. And one of my trips to Honduras, I was talking to this, these really poor schools. And there's a group of teenage guys talking, yakking it up. So I'm like, oh, I want to go talk to them. I walk over. They see me coming. They all turn their backs on me. Very rude. They didn't yeah. want to talk to a white guy. So I walk up, and in Spanish, I say, ¿Cuántos de ustedes han soñado con vivir en Estados Unidos? How many of you guys have dreamed of living in the United States? Whoop, everybody turns around. Because <laughs> they all, right? They right. want to talk about that. And because that's the reality. If you're currently in Honduras and your family doesn't have money or influence, you're not going to have it. There is zero right. social mobility. And so these kids all do have the dream of living somewhere like the U.S., you know, where they might actually have opportunity. That's why so many kids are getting on trains and walking across Mexico. Right. So, But I'm talking to these kids, and once they relaxed and once we're talking, and I had shown them the same exact presentation I show in the U.S. of all these actual videos and pictures of all these kids that died. And when I show them all these American kids who've destroyed themselves, you know, kids who live in the land of opportunity, who, have, who had opportunities these, these young guys can't even dream of. Right. They ask me a question, why? And so all over the world when I travel, these kids in these impoverished countries who idolize the United States, 
They don't get it. And I don't get it, guys. I, can, I, I don't know why our kids they, are so willing to poison themselves. Yeah, well, this is, this is strong. I don't either. But I'll tell you what. We definitely have a big What you're doing culture. is the best work. That's why we, I asked you to come on here. And hopefully somebody in some position that can allocate funds and resources will see this. And get that program and go, hey, the schools. Who is that? We we we've heard of him, right? But what he's saying makes sense. This is crazy. Rocky's has a unique way of getting into the minds of young people. And typically, when you have a guest speaker at a junior high school or an elementary school, you cannot keep their attention for over five seconds. However, if you watch his shows, I mean, they're they're like. They're almost like concerts. All yeah. these kids are there. <laughs> and you can drop a needle on the ground and hear it. For some reason, you have the ability to get their attention. Kids. It's insane. You could put anyone else out there, and you're not going to keep that attention. Well, I have, so I, that's how much drugs is impacting because all these yeah, kids yes. have their secret lives. Yeah. They have their private lives, and it's affecting everyone. It can be a multi-billion-dollar industry without it going everywhere in every household, and everyone has a problem with it, whether it's your parents on pharmaceutical prescription, you're going to have side effects. Yeah. Or if they're taking illegal drugs, you're going to have side effects. Or, or drinking. Or drinking. Yeah. And these kids, when you're a kid, you're in prison. You can't say anything because you're living under the house of your parents. So that was unique what I saw. The way you can get in the minds of these kids is very influential, and they're craving it. They're like, oh, my God, this guy finally relates. So why aren't they funding it? Right. Well, one thing I want to point out. There, there's, there's many social problems we're fighting with right now, but drug abuse for me is the one that, that cuts everybody. Right. Nobody is safe. Doesn't matter where you live, Nobody's what your safe. ethnic background is, right. how much money you make, and yep. how educated you are. There is there's not another social. You can move to certain places and escape from the violence. Yeah. Right. You can be super helicopter parent and protect your kids from certain types of influence. But drugs it cuts through it all. Yeah. Nobody is safe, and we're not doing the most basic stuff. But the biggest audience I had was 2,000 students at Torrey Pines High School. The whole student body. Well, like three quarters of the student body. Very privileged. You know, argumentatively very arrogant kids. You know, it's an interesting, interesting place up there. Um, and you can see the difference when you go to different schools. Oh, I, on yeah, I, I, I've done right away. I can right away measure yeah. what a school climate. I can measure the receptiveness of the kids or right. lack of it. Right. And uh, but a friend of mine taught there for decades, and he took a picture. And all the I'm in the middle of the gym, a very small guy with this huge horde of kids. And he said, Rocky, I've never seen these kids off their phones listening to anybody. Right. right. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so, and, and I make the joke. Well, that's because I'm so beautiful and such a great, you know, speaker, right? <laughs> no, it's because those kids are desperate and hungry right. for information. And because of my history and my life history and all that, they, they see me as a credible presenter. And that's the thing. I think that's why this works for me. I'm authentic. You know, I'm not. There sure. has to be some program. I mean, maybe we just know about it. Because if you're teaching your kids in third or fourth, fourth grade that the identity of your gender, you know, specific, you could be a girl, you could be a boy, you can like a girl, you can like a boy. All that's integrated in the school system. So why isn't it the same at that age, that important issue that they're trying to say? That's what I'm saying. For drugs. That's what I just said. Right, because there's going to be more, and I'm not, I don't know the stats, but I could probably put a good bet on it. There's more people that drug affects overall their life than being than gender dysphoria, you're be, than gender dysphoria or any, any other thing. Drugs affects everyone. Well, let me ask Rocky this question. <clears throat> so you know when I was on the County Board of Education, I pushed really hard to get Narcan in the school. Now – and it was – Narcan is the opioid reversal medication in case you're suffering from an uh, overdose. You can spray this mist in it's your like nose. It's like Dristan. Yeah. Yeah. So – and I could not believe 
just how much bullshit I was getting from everybody Resistance. from the top down. I'm like, hey, this is going to save a kid's life. Right. And it's well, easy. how do we get it in there? Should the nurse? So they go, we'll give it to the nurse and we'll give it to the vice principal. I go, what if somebody's overdosing in the bathroom? I mean, right. so anyways, it finally became an over-the-counter medication. But some people are saying that that's a bad thing because now kids are carrying Narcan with them. And in case overdose, they overdose, they don't care. They're like, hey, now I have my safety net. Well, I can tell you, I, I actually know about this. So, okay. yeah. Right. That's you, why I'm asking you. The county office did a lot of great work. <clears> and, waters. and almost every school in San Diego, I think, has Narcan now on campus. Correct. In some form. Maybe just one. Yeah. Do you know why? It's because of him. Yes. Then, yeah. And then Because then, then, I was there when he started. Right. And after years my, ago. And there's still very good people that I work with who are pushing that and make it very easy for schools, you know, to get it. Fortunately, it's not. It's very rarely used, right? Because kids aren't typically bringing fentanyl to school, but the schools Correct. have it, right? But everything has everything has a negative consequence. Nothing you can't do anything in society without some kind of right. negative right. You know, pushback in the other direction. And we have made a big move to really make it easy to get Narcan. We're getting water here in the population. Oh, yeah. I, for, I, for, I forgot to grab water, man. Like, such bad cotton. Listen to this. I can knit a sweater. <sighs> Yeah. Are these Bud Lights? Really <laughs> Just kidding. Mm. We're having a beer while we're doing this. No, 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 I'm out of here. Costco bubble water. You guys are you guys are corrupt hypocrites. It's the best. It's it's Kirkland. So Whatever. I was I was in a high school teaching in a high school in Bakersfield. Bakersfield's got some problems. They've got some challenges. Gang problem. You always hear about Bakersfield having problems. What's going on? I don't What's know. going on with that? This, the, this is tough, it the heat? I was, I was in a tough school. And it was tough. You could tell. <laughs> I, I could tell. This is a tough. Tough, yeah, tough crowd. So I did a couple of, I mean, I did four assemblies. I think I did four grade levels and kids were great. And the kids, you know, initially a, a, a thousand kids show up in a gym. None of them want to be there when I start. Mm -hmm, right. That's the thing. Yeah. Drunk like, assembly. They're like, oh my now? God. Yeah, no. But you know, within five, 10 minutes, I've got most of them listening. And by the end they're like, oh, okay, that was interesting. You know, I, I learned something here. But after my assemblies, this kid came to the school drug counselor. Bakersfield has dedicated drug counselors in the school, which is amazing. That's good. We don't typically have that in San Diego. Shout out for Baker School Shout District. Out for the Bakersfield School District, yeah. absolutely. Kern County. Um, so this kid comes to the drug counselor and says, Can I talk to you? And and the drug counselor says, Well, can Rocky sit in? The guy says, Yeah. 16 year old gangster, 16 year old Hispanic gang member. And he explains that recently his friend in the gang had gotten murdered. And this kid had chosen to use fentanyl to medicate his grief. His yeah, self-medicating. Yeah. And the counselor and I go, well, dude, aren't you worried about the overdose? And do you know about Narcan? And the kid goes, yeah, we call that designated driver. And I go, what? <laughs> and he explained to me. He's the first one to explain to me. So they, they know fentanyl is dangerous. Right. So when they're going to use it, they'll give Narcan to one of the kids. Who's not using. Who's the designated driver. Right. And then the other kids use it thinking that that's the safe way to use. But they don't understand with fentanyl. Uh, a dose of Narcan used to work on people with heroin. Right. And fentanyl is 50 times stronger. So there are multiple cases now, my friends tell me, where people are being Narcan six, seven, eight times. Right. And the Narcan temporarily stops the overdose. But, but then when the Narcan reverse. wears off and the overdose comes back. Yeah, you got to get them to the hospital. Yeah. And so having one Narcan for two or three people, is, it's, it's, you might as well not have it. Right. But giving the kids the Narcan without the education about the limitations of right. Narcan is it, one of the unfortunate downsides. I'm, so, I'm a big so what are you guys advocate. Doing? Yeah, but what are we doing about that? Well, I, I'm out teaching. I'm out teaching, right? I'm doing what I can to get. You know, I think about that because I have Narcan in my car, not because I, I hang out with people that are doing those drugs, but <clears throat> I've teenage kids, and they're and I never know like if I'm going to go to a party or 
do well, something. I, I, was at the, I was at the middle school this morning, and a little girl came out crying after my assembly. And she comes from a druggy environment. It's a lot of beach, but she comes from a problematic home. And uh, she said one of her friends just gave her some candy. And so she's taking the candy, and then she asked her friend, well, where'd you get it? And she goes, well, I got it from this other kid who didn't want it. And this little 12-year-old said she spit it out. But what's Smart. candy? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't candy, matter. candy, oh, but, a piece but, of candy. It probably was yeah, just candy. candy. Yeah, it probably was just candy. Yeah. But, and I, I, I said to the little girl, I said, that sucks <laughs> that you have to live in a reality. Right. Where, where you, you have to do 12, that. Right. You are worried about that. And I said, but right. you know what? Good on you. Right. Right. Because you know what? That could be some friend thing. And this would be funny. Right. Ah, it's we'll true. It's a big even gap with in our Halloween, Halloween, man. Yeah. Halloween. Halloween. I get, I let my kids get all the candy. They run all over and, and, and you I eat it all away. I save some of it. Can you I even do Halloween? You can you even take candy from people's homes anymore? Yeah, yeah, it just yeah. It seems risky. No, no. There's a lot of people that do Halloweens. If it's packaged. Let's keep yeah. that. Uh, you never yeah. know. But let's keep that tradition going. Well, it's not – look, it's not the business plan. of the, People were freaking out last Halloween about the, the rainbow fentanyl, the multicolored fentanyl. Right. And people were freaking out that they were going to get – kids were going to get it. It is not It is not the business plan of a drug trafficker to give to away their people. drugs to your kids on Halloween. Right. Right? The, the, the rainbow color fentanyl for me is much more dangerous. It's done on purpose. It's done as marketing. Because the drug dealers know if the kids, if the pill looks pretty, then the kids are more likely to, to believe it's safe. Um, but I worry about the children of the people who use it because when they pass out and the, the pills fall on the ground or they're left on the nightstand, the little kids are going to come in and think it's candy. Can you believe how sick you have to be to create drugs that look like candy just to get kids high? I mean, that is just like one know. evil plan right there. Yeah. And you know, the it looks like candy. The government right now is talking about going to war with the drug cartel. You hear about this? The carrying them terrorist yeah. organization. I, 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 so, I, that's – yeah. And and I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think that's yeah. kind of opening a Pandora's box. Yeah, I'm thinking the same. Um, but but Never even before war. we get there, even before we get there, if if we had – we went to war with ISIS yeah. correctly, right? Yeah, ISIS we needed to be addressed. And and – ISIS was going to grow if we didn't address it. So we did militarily. But if we anyway, – and we did find occasional Americans who were funding ISIS and we treated them like terrorist financers. The cartels, where are they getting their money? All of the cartel financing is coming from millions of Americans right. buying their drugs One, from the local yeah. drug dealer. So, so are we going to make – How are you talking – how can – logically, right. how can you talk about going to war with the cartels when there are millions of Americans who are funding – those cartels without dealing with that first. Then so they I'm would not, be enemy. They so would, I'm not saying I'm not an expert. I can't say we should go to war or not in the cartels. I think it's really more dangerous than maybe they might think it is. But it's not even logical to try to do that until we've taken our own drug consuming population seriously. Well, based upon that, if you declare that the cartels are terrorist organizations and then you're a drug dealer in the United States, you're typically sponsoring terrorism. So you could be arrested under those terrorism laws. Well. Yes. Conflict. I don't know that we're ready. Our but that's what got, I'm saying. But we've got, that's we've how got some conflict. We, I don't think have, they want to arrest people anymore for nonviolent drug dealers. Well, know? that's the thing. Right. Society's decided Society turned around. They, don't, they let them out. That's what, the, yeah. that's what that law was. If you have a nonviolent crime, why, why should we put you in prison? Go on the streets. So the cops, everyone's frustrated. Well, there's an interesting so, – so there, there's two thoughts, right? If you did declare them a terrorist organization, there's the, certainly the military option, which is what some people are talking about. Um, which I which I think is not a not something we want to unleash. There's you know as bad as it is, we don't have bombings. I mean they these cartels. ISIS did not have thousands of ISIS soldiers across American cities. The cartels have thousands of their soldiers in all of our cities. 
controlling and in the United States. Yes, absolutely controlling and distributing the drug distribution. So if I don't personally believe that some cartel guy in Mexico is going to be too happy about cruise missiles coming in on his hacienda, right? <laughs> and not tell his guys here, you know what? Let's go to war. We're going to fight back, right? It's like that movie Clear and Present Danger when they drop that bomb on that. Yeah, they're probably weighing it. So the other, but the, the, it's not just going to war with them. One of the problems in law enforcement is we have to do a lot of work before you can arrest somebody correctly, right? Correctly, right. It takes a lot of time, a lot of resources. That's one of the challenges. There's so many drug dealers and there's so few cops relatively trying right. to stop it that, that, you know, every guy you squash, there's, there's 10 more gophers popping up out of Correct. the house, right? One of the Smash benefits from, it's whack-a-mole. One of the, one of the possible, you know, putative benefits of, of declaring these organizations terrorists is all of a sudden we could go after the money. The money. Stop right? the finance. The realtors who launder the money. Now you're a, you're not just money laundering. You're, you're, you're terrorist financiers. Right. Bankers. We take away their travel visas. Their kids can't come to the United States anymore. I mean, there's a tons of administrative sanctions that we could just like lightning bolts without some lengthy investigation. Boom, 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 boom. Not arresting them, but all of a sudden making it very painful for B to be anywhere close. Like all these semi-legitimate business people who, who strut around like high society people who are laundering all the money. All of a sudden they got to make a decision here. Are you going to... You know, is it worth it to get stained by this? So I'm actually all for that. I think that'd be amazing. Like that should happen today. Yeah. If, right. you're, if, if we can argue just like a basic declaration, probable cause statement, if we can show some basic standing that, hey, you know, I'm sorry, uh, Mark, we, or Frank, we discovered that you're you're taking money. Boom, you're, you just lost your real estate license. Maybe, your bank accounts are frozen. Maybe that's why they want to go all digital too with currency. It'd be a lot easier if you have a digital currency market as opposed to paper dollars. Well, then, then they would develop a different type of black market. Yeah. Right. There, so there's, no matter what they one they, of one of the one of the they figure out a way. There was one of my last cases I worked on. It wasn't mine, but I participated in it. Was there was a liquor store in San Diego, and these Jamaican guys were in San Diego, and they were buying really kind of junky, like low grade marijuana that's legal here, and nobody's investigating it. And they were boxing it, shipping it back to the East Coast, where it's not legalized, and they're making a lot of money, lots of money. And they were taking their profits. The money with the dope was going out in boxes. The cash was coming back in boxes. And they would take that cash to this one liquor store. And the, the liquor store guy would convert it into these uh, Western Union checks. Got it. Right? Like $5,000, $10,000. And there were no names on it. And when we raided this, this guy's house, a uh, guy she lived kind of near me. Did so, he get a percentage off it too? It, yeah. Oh, it yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. So, so it was a cul-de-sac. And the, the liquor store owner was on one side of the cul-de-sac. And this Jamaican guy was living on the other side. Okay. Right? And they just happened. You know, they knew each other. They just happened. Like, yeah, I got a house. And so, so we raided both houses. The liquor store owner owns one liquor store in San Diego, in National City. We found $300,000 in a shoebox in his closet. That's his, like, just travel money from this one little liquor store. But the, the Jamaican guy, we walk in his house. I couldn't believe it. The, the floor was littered with these $10,000 checks. They were making so much money. They had these laying around. So what they've done, it's a barter system. So that check is worth $10,000. But it's not made out to anybody. So they trade these. Right. They trade these Got it. checks. You owe somebody hundred thousand dollars. You send them ten checks. So you can't right. And then he hangs on to them, and then he can use those to buy it from somebody else. And then when somebody wants to, then they they, they can yeah put their name wow. in, they put a name in it and they fill it. So it, it, it's <clears throat> so it, the government's going to try and impose this central bank digital currency for whatever reason. But trust me, the criminals are very quickly going to find, and the, the population that wants their drugs is going to very quickly find a way. How do they think of that stuff? They're smart. They're smarter than we are. And they're more, they're more motivated than we are. The profit, like, like the profits you said, are ridiculous. Drug users aren't bad people. They're just caught up in it, you know? Yeah, and, and, and often this is something people find interesting, right? I actually liked many of the drug users I arrested. 
on some kind of a personal very level. charismatic people. They're, very, they're, entire, right. they're entrepreneurs. Good salesperson, right? They love their kids too. Right. And I'd say, you know, screw you, dude. See you in jail. You know, right. I, I got no, I got no problem. Right. And, uh, but it is, you know, I, one of the negative parts of my job is I, I did break up a lot of families. I arrest dad and the kids are right. now dadless and stuff, but I'm, that's dad's fault, not my fault. Right, exactly. Right. But in fact, a lot of the drug dealers are, surprisingly, aside from being very bad people in what they do, they're actually kind of fun and you know, funny and interesting. Yeah, why not? I mean, it takes somebody with charisma and some guts to do that. They're salespeople. Yeah, they're yeah, salespeople. They're salesmen. And the Top sales they have dogs. to have a little right. bit of. I want to have a quota. <laughs> Better sell two tons today, man. I'm sure. I'm going they, for three. I'm sure that they do. And yeah. they're very creative. They're very creative. And that's one of the challenges. All the ways they smuggle it in yeah. and they make it out of, you know. So one of the challenges of being DEA agent is one of the, the interesting parts of the job is you got to try to outsmart them, right? It's, it's actually really challenging. You know, right. a lot of, so a lot of law enforcement agencies are reactive, right? If there's a bank robbery, the FBI goes in and is reactive, right? Right. What what evidence is there? Can we prosecute somebody off of the fingerprints or the videos or whatever you have? A murder that's reactive. DEA is the kind of crime where where we we create undercover deals. We create these opportunities to collect the evidence. So if I'm coming after Frank Powell, uh, the drug dealer, and I don't get Frank Powell today, well, I'll, maybe I'll do I'll get him tomorrow. I'll get him the day after. Right? So right. it's this cat and mouse game that can actually last for years. Got it. Every time you kind of catch on right after you and you hide, well, we got to figure out where you are and we start over again. So right. it's, it's a different type of criminal investigation. That's, it's Do you work with the ATF ever? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I worked with the FBI. I worked with ATF a lot with the U.S. Customs Service and then in HSI. Now, I know after um, 9-11 when the buildings fell, we uh, made Homeland Security. That was, out, that was because of the buildings falling. And that, that produced FEMA and having, you know, strike forces. Do you guys have a strike force made out from that, uh, made out of all individual departments where you can go in as a team that you've already trained together? No, no. So we, we do joint operations, but typically the, the agencies all operate independently. Um, different training, different tactics. And we will work together occasionally. But, like, if we're doing a, if we're doing a raid, you don't use a mixed team. Right, Got it. you'll use the DEA team, or you'll use like right. Or use the border. The border patrol now has raid teams, or you'll use the, the San Diego Sheriff team. But you don't mix because uh, yeah. the, the, communi- the communication and tactics are just they might be similar, but they're just you need guys to be right on. And now and now they're using drones, and it's it, everything's slowed way down. It's much safer. You know, we used to just kick in the door and you know go in on a wing and a prayer. And now right. it's much more methodical. The guys are way better trained than than I ever was. Different, if, Rocky for. <clears throat> I've been out of the County Board of Education for a while now. Let me see. 2020? When was I out? 2020? I don't remember. Three years. I've been out for three years. So how much of their budget is allocated to your department? I don't know. Really? I, I'm no, I'm no, I don't pay attention to that. You know, I'm, out, I'm out in the community, Mark. Just doing well, I know job. because they have, they have a $650 million. I mean, if you think about it, yeah, that's if you have budget. half a million students – in San Diego County, and that County Office of Education is funded at six hundred and fifty million. That's eleven, twelve hundred bucks a kid. I like, how much of that is going to go? And it'd be interesting to find out. I, I would wager most of that's already programmed for other requirements. I mean, that's that's something that 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 I don't want to run a school today. I mean, that the the list of obligations and requirements put on schools, all the things schools are supposed to accomplish, uh, that's a nightmare, right? And so one of the reasons I, that my work is very fr- has been very frustrating over the years is I'll go do a presentation at a school or a staff training or something, and everyone's very engaged after my assembly. Oh, we got to do something. We got to do something. Follow-up. No so follow at up. that moment. Yeah. Right? 
But the next day when they get the inbox right. and they've got 25 new crises right. that have to be dealt with right now, doing something about the drug problem just falls off. Always falls off. Not always. And historically, before Dr. Gotthold created this job and gave me this like full-time and, and legitimacy, right? I mean, the County Office of Education has incredible legitimacy within the county. And schools that historically may not have brought me in because well, they don't want some parent to question why you'd bring in a DEA guy. Well, now I'm not a DEA guy. Now, right. I'm, now I'm an educator right. for, I'm an ambassador for the county office, which has really helped me get into schools. Way more helpful. But, right. but it's still the priority. And, and historically, the schools that would use me, would make the room for me, are ones where you know, a student had died. Um, three high schools during COVID had me come in and do all school assemblies after students. So they're those. reactive like everybody else. You know, they wait for a kid to die, then they go, <clears throat> no, maybe no, but, or, or, but for whatever personal reason, they realize it's important. Right. And a lot of those schools, the administrators may not have that personal experience. And the drug problem to them doesn't seem as imminent as other problems, right? That's changing. You know, honestly, like, you know, when I got hired two years ago, um, we had big meetings about how to market what I did. And then, you know, it started out kind of slow during COVID. Well, it, my work just took off. I mean, I'm at the point now where, where you know, I, I'm going to start saying no to people. And in fact, my office is investing a lot of money right now creating um, a video production around what I do. So we took my one-hour, 90-minute session and broke it in six chapters. And then those, those six chapters, which are, you know, the components of my talk – are going to be freely available to schools. And the original concept was that schools could use those. If I couldn't go to the school, at least the county office would make the information available to them. I also think, though, that they're going to be used after I come to a school. Like if a teacher's want to just kind of rehash the theme. Right. Or even, even you know, before I come. So we'll see. You know, I, we don't know yet if the kids are actually going to watch these videos. Well, like what I'd like to see, Rocky, is that your office and the curriculum and instruction office partner up because somehow the information that you have needs to be embedded in the curriculum, not not a separate kind of thing. It's like what Frank was talking about. Yeah. Like they have Nationwide. equity and diversity right. and social-emotional learning, but, that that is part of the actual curriculum. Right. But the problem is there's so many other things that have to be in the curriculum. Yeah, right? but, but this is the only thing that kills kids. It, but until this isn't my, – my, my, you know I mean? my take on it is until it's mandated – well, trans people commit suicide, so that kills kids. That's important too. Yeah, but not at the rate that fentanyl and drugs do. Right. It's just not even. It's not even. But close. until it's mandated, right. it's not going to happen. Right. right? Well, until it's mandated, it's going to be haphazard and and people. Okay, like so me. now you're talking to the Powell brothers. Right. We are shakers and movers. Okay. Right. We get shit done. So you tell me what your dream would be if you if you're able to get it successful because it seems like you're getting a lot of roadblocks and you don't know why. So what would you think the perfect dream would be, Mark and I helping you? What do you want? Well, I, I'd like you to talk to your influential friends. And, and because influential friends have no influential people. And like I've said several times, I believe until it's mandated. You, drug education used to be mandated in California. The California Department of Education mandated it and funded it. It's no longer mandated. And it was, that was, um, this is the insanity, guys. This, that, that, I don't know. The, the, my one of my coworkers, Jim, knows all this stuff. But maybe 2009, I think, roughly, that's when California said, okay, we don't need this anymore. And the insanity is it's not been reinstated. You look at the, the, the suffering. So are, the you, suffering uh, is are you sure that it's not mandated in, in, the, in our – Well, what they do is it, like it's got to be in health class or something. So there's something is being taught. Right, but it's not how I teach it. Like if it's like a ten-minute bullshit. It's, well, I don't. Yeah. No, I'm not going to say that. But I'm saying, but it's it's more like this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. You know, right? One these are chemicals. This is how it impacts your body. It's but bad. There's, there's not the emotional. Right. Like let's look what happens to people. Right. And that what what 
how I distinguish what I do from all the other very good people out doing it is I bring a ton of emotion right. to it. And I'm able to teach it in a very emotional way from stuff I've lived and I've learned. And what I do is not designed by a committee. That's what's astonishing, really. That That's why it's successful. <laughs> well, thank you. It was me and the program, right? But the program I, be, I did, began to design in 2007 that I taught more and more and more and more while I was with DEA. I brought that same content over to the county. And I'm evolving constantly. Like today, the little girl tells me that she had a friend offer her candy and she spit it out. That's in my mind. Like, am right. I going to incorporate that tomorrow? Right. Gotcha. Right? So I'm able, to, story. I'm able to. I don't have to stick to some kind of a mandated curriculum. And that I'm everyone else doing this work, everyone else doing this work is stuck to right. some, like whatever their organization says, this is right. what you're going to teach. I'm the only lunatic <clears throat> out there that can yell have, at the kids. You have some flexibility. Honestly, I, can, I can yell at the kids. So is school. there any way to duplicate you like with other formal uh, retired DEA or a ATF? Absolutely. Right. So all these guys who retire have all this experience that spend their whole life fighting against drugs are sitting there because I know cops, they don't like to retire. They may think they do, and they do the fishing bullshit for a while. But you got this drive in you still where you're just like, you want to so do something. I have, I, I have wondered over the years why I haven't been able to get more people to kind of step up. I don't know why I have this crazy passion for this. Yeah. I, I'm, this is my purpose, man. As long And people ask me how long am I going to do it. I'm 56, and I, I, I look old. Um, but you don't look, well, you don't look a day over 60. Okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I tell people, you know, as long as the kids keep listening to me, I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Like, like literally, if I ever show up in a school and I, and I just can't engage the kids anymore, then that'll be the message. Now, what I hope is that society mandates this soon and what? I can ride off in the sunset, right? I hope right. I'm replaced by something that's much better than what I do. What I find very unique about you, Rocky, when you told me one day and I couldn't believe it, is that you do the same lectures here as you do in Mexico, where you're a DEA agent and the cartel's not killing you. How does that work? Oh, well, that's the look. I, I'm not going to say there's no risk right. to me doing this, but we, we talked earlier, it's a business. Right. Right. Do you, so, does the drug cartel know that you're a teacher? Yo, yeah. Yeah. They I'm, know I'm, yeah. I'm, and they I'm, accept I'm not you. Gonna, well, right. I, yeah. I don't know what the drug cartels think about me. Right. Um, it might piss them off that I, there's some ex DEA guys publicly in Mexico talking about drug abuse. Right. But. The drug dealers don't want their kids addicted either. I got you. Right? Right. So honestly, that, right. you know, and, but even beyond that, even if my presence in Mexico severely pisses off some drug trafficker, which right. it might, killing me is going to change a lot of things for that guy. Right. Right? It's going to be a lot of, I don't want to die. You're, you're, you're I, more I, problems dead hey, than alive. So, so in, I, in Bolivia, I learned this, right? In Bolivia, I, I, foot tall, I stood out. I kind of got over being afraid. I'm not a courageous guy. I mean, I'm, right. I'm kind of a cowardly guy, you know? But I accepted that my, my killing me doesn't make sense. It's like Osama bin Laden, six foot eight, you're going to be seen. Uh, yeah. Six, so I don't six live, foot four and people are five, five, eight. I don't live eight. with paranoia. Right. I go to Mexico. I don't worry about it. And I, I take faith in the fact that there's no economic benefit and a whole lot of negative to come right. from. But you also said that you, see, you have to see a counselor. Was it, why? Well, the counselor was just, just every day. Because yeah. really, so there's, I have two purposes, three purposes in my talks. The main purpose remains, has always been remains, reduce the initiation of drug use. Right. That's what Number I'm trying one. to do. If you want to describe what I'm, Rocky's trying to reduce, Rocky doesn't want to talk to kids who are already in addiction. That's yeah. a whole different mess. I'm trying to teach prevention. our mass population, true prevention, prevention. true right. primary prevention. Don't start. For the kids who are already using, who aren't in heavy addiction yet, I'm hoping that I can't, I'm, the kids aren't, maybe aren't going to stop smoking weed, but if I can convince them not to try those pills right. and to go no further, that's right. a win for me, right? right? So try to reduce this initiation. Try to get the kids who are already sort of in that path to, to go to stop or back up, 
before it becomes a real bad problem. And in the last year and a half, I've really been focusing. In the middle of my presentation, I kind of stop. And I say to the kids, now let's talk about life in addiction. And it's crime, poverty, child neglect, child abuse. And I go this time, I say, you all know kids living in neglect because the parents are substance abusers and they're not neglecting the kids. And it sucks for those kids. And then I say, you all know kids, some of you know kids who've been abused by their own parents because I meet them all the time. Mom gets angry when she's drunk or dad can't, gets angry when he can't get high, takes it on his own kids. And then I say, I pause. This is the middle of my presentation. I say, look at me. Everybody look at me. And they do. <laughs> like, who's this crazy guy? And I say, if you're living any of this, it's not your fault. It's not your damn fault. <laughs> That's exactly right. how I said and some of the schools say they actually see, they look, some of the kids actually like physically jolt. Like right. the kids who are in crisis and living, because right. no one's told them it's not their fault. Right, right. And, and so these kids, these are Life the kids. Life turns on. So when I started doing that, that's when all these kids started to come up to me to share. Right. Lemon Grove, a 12-year-old girl comes up, waits, all the other kids leave. She's a beautiful little girl, tiny, comes up to me, 12 years old. Rocky, I've been clean from meth and coke for seven months. Her mom's a user. And the kid at 11 started stealing mom's drugs. And, and so I take a picture, a selfie with her. Again, the school's watching me talk to her. Right. And I take a selfie, but I send the picture to the district. And I, I, explain, the, I explain the problem. And the district goes, oh, my God. We know that girl because she's a nightmare for vaping. I mean, she's constant vaping violations. They didn't know why. Right. right. She's using vaping to yeah, keep herself stop. away from yeah, that. Let her right. vape. Well, no. So, that, so get this. So people ask, well, what do you do? Well, you know what? That little girl, the school did not know. Right. That little girl's life is going to be different now because right. the school district's going to dump a bunch of resources in to support her. Right. And they never would have known if I had not gone in. But those instances. And how many dad, of those are daughters. there? There's so many. Well, for everyone that talks to me, how many more are there? Right. And I, so I tell schools and they get pissed. But I tell schools, look, you know you have a problem population, right? You know those kids coming to school traumatized because they manifest it. Based on my experience, you've got a population of kids at least as big who is suffering from someone else's abuse and not telling anybody. And right. you don't know about it. And they're not going to tell you because telling you might destabilize their world. They right. can't trust what you're going to do. Right. They've rationalized that as crappy as their reality is, they prefer that over living in foster care or right. seeing dad in prison. So they're not telling anybody. Right? So I, what I do in my talks, I tell those kids, I believe, I make them feel heard, and I tell them it's not their fault, and I tell them it does not have to be your future. Takes the edge off them. Takes his stress off. Did, did, did I say it's okay, not your thank fault. you. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of parents, uh, for you're, it's because of you I get high. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. To, to their kids. I'm know? beating you because you're Rocky, a bad kid. One yes, interesting thing that you're involved with, and I want you maybe before we end, you can just touch upon this. You're involved with the World Boxing Council. Yeah. And you get to meet some really cool boxers. And in the last episode, we were having a, a discussion about who was the best all-around boxer ever. Was it Muhammad <laughs> Ali, George Foreman? Sugar Ray Leonard, Rocky Mar. I mean, we're with an Italian guy, yeah. Tony Calabresi. We had this really deep conversation because we rem we remember when Ken Norton broke Ollie's jaw in San Diego. Like we were here, and but you get to meet the new up and coming boxers, and these are badasses that I can really fight. So, but what's your involvement with that, and as far as your your work? Well, it's interesting. The World Boxing Council is one of the four sanctioning bodies for boxing, and they have the green belt. I'm not a boxing guy, right. mm -hmm. but I was giving a conference in Mexico City at their, their basically their Olympic training center four years ago. And I'm on stage. The U.S. ambassador was there. Big, 500 athletes, 200 coaches, a Mexican army honor guard for me, and TV channel. It was crazy, this huge event. And the U.S. ambassador was there. So there's four of us on stage, me, the guy that runs this Olympic training center, uh, the ambassador, and then a fourth guy. What were you talking about? It's my same drug program. Okay. So they had invited me to come in and give my program to those athletes. Athletes are as much at risk as anybody else. 
And the very interesting conference. So 10 minutes into it, the U.S. ambassador, who Mr. Landau was like six foot eight, about 10 minutes into my, and all these people are there. This is a huge thing. U.S. ambassadors coming to a drug event. This is huge. This has never happened before. He gets up and walks out. And his whole entourage follows him. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just stressful. I'm speaking in Spanish. I got TV cameras in front of me. I'm like, oh, Mr. Landau doesn't like the talk. Oh, no. Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. Keep going, Keep right? going. About 10 minutes later, he comes back in. And, and, you know, and in my presentation, I'm blaming the United States, right? I'm saying, look, it's the consumers of our country. And I'm doing this in front of the ambassador. And I see people looking at me and, I, and they're go. looking at the ambassador. <laughs> Do you like, know the ambassador is here, buddy? And this yeah. is when I was an active, this is, I was active DEA. Okay. So this is, I'm an American guy saying, you know what? Our country's missing the boat here, right? right? In front of the ambassador. And no one can believe it. So, and I'm thinking he didn't like my talk. He grabs a microphone and for 10 minutes just gives the most beautiful validation of my message. And he explained that he, he wow. was so, he was so impacted cool. emotionally by my presentation, he was going to cry. So he walked out to compose himself and he came back in. So then, so he speaks. And then this, this other guy who's on stage says, Rocky, come over here. So he, this group of men and women gathers around me, old, young, and I don't, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> and this small guy takes out of his bag two beautiful leather boxing gloves. Cleto Reyes, the, high, the fanciest boxing gloves you could have, this co- Mexican company, Cleto Reyes. And he puts them on me and they rip my arm up and everybody's cheering. And this guy grabs a microphone and says, Rocky has the toughest fight of all. We want to give Rocky the, Rocky the best tools. And these are all boxing world champions. Yeah. And it's Mauricio Suleiman of the World Boxing Council. So we talked afterwards, and we both agreed that 95% of the kids around the world who go into boxing do it to escape from yeah, bad, bad home. Bad something. Kids, kids from Fulhead Country Day School and Bishop School aren't right. running to boxing gyms. Right. right. right? It's the kids from or trying to escape. Tougher and, neighborhoods. And the problem is... Those kids move into boxing trying to get away from problems at home, problems on the street. But that gravitational pull is really strong. So what we talked about was incorporating my work into his world to give the kids who leave the streets into boxing the best tools they have to stay. Yeah, right. Right. And he's a very, very prominent guy in, in Mexico. And this most recent trip I went, you know, he's the one that vouched for me with these other authorities. So, yeah, I have this incredible relationship with the World Boxing Council. Um, my favorite boxer is Sugar Ray Leonard, oh, and I got to meet him a year ago. So good. You got to meet him, huh? Really? Yeah. yeah. How's he doing? Looks great to me. Sugar Ray S- Leonard versus Duran. Uh, Duran. I remember when he was in the Olympics. So I was at a banquet. I was Two of a, the best boxers headed yeah. head. I met a banquet. Duran was a bulldog, man. In Mexico City. And Sugar Ray's there. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I had two of these gloves, right? One of them I'd have all these people sign it. I don't know who these boxers are. But I would somebody tell right. me he's a champion. Hey, and right. these champs to sign my glove. Cool. Right. Yeah. I had one glove that was oh. clean. So I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, oh, my get, God. Got to get I'll, that I'll, signature. I'll, yeah, so I ran up to my room. And I come down. He's the nicest man ever, right? We talk for a little bit. He signs my glove. I walk into the banquet. And there's Roberto Duran. No oh, way. Yeah. God. So I walked oh, Did you get his? Yes. Oh, so I got, got both? I've got a glove. This With, has Sugar Ray. And okay, then, and put that on your wall. Don't let it happen. Exactly. That's, That's awesome. awesome. But um, so it's it's because of, of the World Boxing Council's support and, and other people stepping up. I have this, this very prominent people now in Mexico who are supporting what I'm doing. You know, And, and I don't talk about the In I mean, Mexico? Yeah. More st- than here? Yes. Yeah. Wow. So the, the support in Mexico. <laughs> so funny. Is greater the way they treat you, the way they they set you up, than here. Well, in, a, in the I, U.S. I'll say this: because of these kind of fortuitous connections that I've made, right? There's some prominent people in Mexico put me out there in a vacuum, right? Because nobody's doing anything in Mexico, right. right? There's a lot of people here doing different things in the U.S. So 
it's just just because of that, really, that I sort of stand out because it's like, wait, wait, what a second, and because yeah. I, because they think I'm James, James Bond right. or Vin Diesel or something. What's Vin Diesel? You know, talking right, to right, kids. Right. So there's a there's a dynamic there that's getting people to focus on what I'm doing, and I'm I'm actually quite happy because as much as people here might want to blame Mexico for the drug problem and whatever the politics are around that. Mexican families and Mexican kids are suffering just like ours. Of course. Do you know who I want to introduce you to? I want to introduce you to Dana White. He runs the uh, uh, UFC. So, Frank, do you have a you have a cell number, don't you? Dana White, call him right now. Yeah. I hope Dana White yeah, sees. Listen, no. I hope he sees this. I don't know. And we don't get have and him. we get more kids because there's kids. Yeah, Dana, Dana. They're going into the know. MMA, mixed martial arts. That's a really good way to prevent kids from doing these things. Maybe you can tap into that. Yeah. Same like World Boxing Council. I mean, yes. more and more kids are going into jujitsu. But we did karate when we were growing up, and it we stayed in for twelve something. I don't know. We're fighting in so many tournaments, but it was good. It was really. That's what kept us out of. Yeah, stick kids in karate. Well, or jujitsu is really any, good. Any kind of any constructive ca- activity. And those guys, these. those Brazilian jujitsu instructors, are so freaking. Nice. Have you ever right. met them? To the nicest they, people they like, in the they world. They know how to handle kids, and they're uh, they don't got that ego like um, you know the the traditional martial arts have, where you bow and you know just master and sabunem. Oh, they know how to. The Brazilian guys are all mellow, and they're in regular clothes. So it's maybe really get to take maybe kids there. at this at this juncture that education needs to partner with private industry, like they did, like you did with the World Boxing Council. And the, the county office of education may start to look at who can we partner with that is going to also help these kids on the streets. Because right. like you said. Well, what's, what, I'm one guy, right? And like I said, I'm not the only guy doing this. And I'm for, I don't want people to think that for a second. There's a lot of very good people. I'm the one that kind of was on like an extreme end of right. in your face, which I think as a parent of three young daughters, I think that's what you need. You got to tell gotta, like it is. You got to make it stick it. emotionally. But what, I'm, what, what happens to me sometimes, and this happened to me recently. I was at a middle school, and I mentioned who thinks drugs are a problem with their school. A couple hands go up. And then who thinks bullying is a problem here? And uh, 300 kids, maybe 10 hands go up. Like, oh, no, no. Because you all know there's some kids sitting here right now who's suffering bullying. And if that's not a problem for all of you, then I have a problem with all of you. Because we're all in this together, and you have a duty to protect people and help people, right? Then I move on. I do my regular drug presentation. So after at lunch, I stayed at lunch at the school, and this little girl comes up. The couple of girls say, hey, would you come back and give a bullying presentation? Oh, no. And, and it wasn't because they felt I'm like an expert on bullying. It's just they wanted a presentation the my, same my style. You, God, that's a style. great idea because more people get bullied on social media than I, I think is a bigger problem than drugs, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, don't know. Just we tear we people just, apart. You know, the survey, no, the surveys actually show the drug use among kids is actually much lower For, than the perception is, right? The percentage of kids, thank God. Yes. But the problem good. is the stuff they're using is so much more dangerous than it ever was. Right. So, so you can look, numbers lie, right? right? Figures lie and liars figure. So you can look at the survey and says, well, we have less kids using drugs. Yay. Well, wait a sec. Except more kids what they're dying. using is right. much more frequent and much more dangerous. Right. We have more kids dying of drug use. So, but yeah, but so I'm, I'm actually advocating and arguing for a series of, of interventions starting in elementary school, like first grade. Right. Basic. Nutrition, self-respect, self-esteem, being part of a community. That in these programs would build a scaffold, they call it, right? And then by the time you get to fifth, sixth grade, we're starting to talk about marijuana and some of the other drugs. And then it gets, you know, more intense, teaching about, you know, sexual dating violence and, and bullying and all these things that kids need to know. But, you know, like I said, schools, I said earlier, schools are just people running the schools are fully occupied just trying to meet all their minimums. Right. They right? got they got their plate full. And so you sit down and say, Oh, we should do more, and they're like, Yeah. Yeah, and pay right. me less. Yeah. That's another problem. Teachers get paid crap. I'm going to address that. 
I'm seriously going to address it tomorrow. It, it is unbelievable. Yeah. There's multiple the, the, the reasons. Multi- There's multiple reasons. Can I finish, Mark? Nope. Here we go again. <laughs> Mark does this. What? I'll talk. And there's multiple reasons. There I'm are. I'm not done talking. Because you sparked something in me. Okay, go ahead, Mark. I'm done. Multiple reasons of what? Why you I'm interrupt finished. me? That's another podcast. Because you're rude. <laughs> you don't focus. Okay, so. You take too long. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing takes too long. <laughs> so what are we going to do? I'm thinking like your drug intervention and bullying should be combined. Because well, what you, you said— asked, You asked earlier, mm-hmm. has any, anybody else stepped up? And, and right. I talked to—a guy named Mark Ruiz has a new friend of mine. And Mark's a retired federal agent, different agency than DEA. And uh, living his life, 20-year-old son is at Cal State San Marcos, um, using some weed, which Mark was aware of. Um, but, you know, society has told our kids it's normal. And, and, and Mark didn't understand. And the kid, you know, went psychotic at 20. On marijuana? On the super concentrated marijuana. And, and, it, and has since, <clears throat> since the last year in rehab. I talked to Mark today and his son's struggling to get clean. But it's, it's an ongoing battle. But part of what Mark did, he found me. And we said, and I said, Mark, I need help. Now, Mark didn't have 30-year career as a DEA agent, so he can't talk about that. But Mark's got a son who's in severe crisis right now. So I've mentored Mark and worked with him. He's amazing. And we, he has designed, we have designed a marijuana vaping presentation that he's starting to deliver in schools. And, he's, and it's, it's how he's doing. I'm doing this for therapy for me. He's doing it for therapy right, for him. Right, exactly. Um, I met with a, a— Is it okay that you— He's cool with you mentioning his name and oh, yeah. that his jerk has a— Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just no, trying to— no, uh, He wouldn't no mention— I know you always got people's back, but I got your back too, so I want to make yeah, sure. Because no, we can edit that out. Mark's know? my people. There's no problem okay, with that. that's really but cool. He, but I, I honor that's Mark. That's very interesting. I, I honor him because he stepped up. I didn't know that there was a— a chance that you can get that screwed up by smoking weed. Oh, big time. Big time. There's a, a, a national news story that came out uh, late last year. And the story, and I don't know the underlying data, but it was a national I news. I thought we were safe. National news. It's not even a drug, Mark, Frank. That's what the kids tell me. Why, Rocky, yeah. why are you talking about weed? It's not even a drug. Because yeah. we've allowed the marijuana industry to brainwash them that it's not even a drug, right? right? But there was a national news story, and I can't vouch for the underlying data. But a national news story said that 37, average, 37 San Diego, young San Diegans a day are being taken to our emergency rooms in mental distress. 37 a day. And that's not showing up saying, hey, well, I feel anxious. That's like out of their mind, psychotic, strapped to a gurney and stuff. Almost 40 a day. We're not talking about that. A very good friend of mine is a, is a senior emergency room physician here in San Diego. Um, and there's a condition called uh, cannabis hyperemesis which is where the, the smooth muscles and the nervous system gets kind of discombobulated from chronic cannabis use. And it caused extreme abdominal pain. And she calls it scrometing, screaming and vomiting. And, and she works in a big emergency room. And she says <laughs> it's the only disease that she can diagnose by hearing. So she's working on a patient. She hears some young person coming in screaming and vo- dry heaving, scrometing, right? right? So they put heating packs on these kids and they get the pain to go away. And then she comes in and she tries to counsel them. And she says, hey, Frank, you know, you went to this terrible pain. But it's your marijuana that's causing it. You gotta, you gotta change up. And these kids tell her, "No, it's my medicine." I mean, they're so invested in right. in the culture of using the marijuana that they're going to continue to inflict upon themselves. Right. And then there's huge connections now. I mean, we don't know if it's if the marijuana causes it or if the marijuana unleashes it. Huge correlations between um, schizophrenia and, uh, and and early marijuana use. Huge numbers of kids going psychotic from the super potent weed. The the weed that Bob Marley smoked. The weed that my friends offered me when I was in middle school was 4% THC, roughly. And that's the natural marijuana plant, right. 4%. THC is a psychoactive drug. The hybrid plant, legally grown in California today, has 25 to 30%. And what parents don't understand, we still call it marijuana, 
it's a different drug. Right. You know, and nobody, when I was young, chain smoked joints. <laughs> but, a, but a joint today has the potency of five or six joints did when I right. was a kid. And then the kids don't even like smoking it. So they're right. using the concentrates in the pipes. And that stuff's 90%. Or they're drinking these li- tinctures, these liquids. And so, what, but, what but is still, that? They have m- marijuana in a, in a in a can. It's a tincture. It's a syrup. You know, people put it in the edibles, and and kids will mix it with soda and drink it. It's nuts. And these kids have no idea how much they're consuming. But I make this argument too. It, when my kids had rushes with alcohol, in, in, in when they were teenagers, and my kids did like everybody else's kids. First question a parent asks is, "Well, what were they drinking?" Hey. Seriously. If you hear there's yeah. a problem, you say, well, was it beer? Was it wine? Was it right. wine coolers? Okay, what was it? You want to know because you understand right. there's different consequences, right? right? How bad was Tequila the Tequila versus a beer. Were you swinging? To, yeah. But unfortunately, even till now, if a kid has a marijuana incident. You can't ask. No. I think most people don't even ask. Right. Oh, it's just marijuana. Right. Well, no. Was it 4%? Yeah. Well, no one. THC. Or no one's going to ask that question. Was it 95%? Because right. it's a very different. We it should have a different name. We don't know that though. There's, but the marijuana industry wants us to keep the, the marijuana industry wants to. They're kind of they're thinking. as big as a tobacco industry by now, uh, right? Who knows how big they are? Right. Who knows? Because there's nobody investigating them. None of the prom- We were promised all sorts of benefits from legalizing marijuana, and in my opinion, not one of those benefits materialized. We just normalized it. Well, money materialized for the states. The, 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 I don't still, know what they're doing with it. They said they're going to fix our streets. There's still a black market. The so streets are all the, the concept up. was we'll legalize it and we'll tax it. And then we'll use all this great right. stuff with the tax money. Right. Well, we all said in the DEA, well, that's stupid right. because people are, are going to sell it for less than the tax. <laughs> so because you're taxing it, you've created a black market of untaxed, right? Untaxed, but you got rid right. of all the law enforcement. Gotcha. The so there's a wide open black that's market right. that nobody's investigating. The marijuana industry, this year or late last year, the marijuana industry, the legal marijuana industry wrote a letter to the governor begging for help, saying, I've seen the letter, begging for help, saying we're going to get demolished. We'd be wiped out economically until you start enforcing the laws. So wait a sec. We were told we didn't need cops when we legalized. Now the legal marijuana people are begging for cops. Right. Right. But the tragedy, the great tragedy that I don't think anybody can really argue with, that legalization normalized it for the kids. Because yeah. these are not adults, they're adolescents. And I ask them, is it, is it harmful? Well, it's legal. Right. For over 21 for a reason. Right. Because it's legal. It should be safe. It's legal. Well, right. safer. But but the way society works in an adolescent brain, if it's legal for over 21, then it must be safe for me too. So I have a tough job. You, and we, you got, we've all talked about this before. I have to go stand in front of 500 or 1,000 high school kids in San Diego and try and tell them the weed's dangerous. Right. And like, shut up, dude. Right. Right? We and, just got done vaping before we came here to listen to you. Yeah. I'm sure there's some guys out there going, if you knew how stoned you were <laughs> as he's speaking. So I don't, I don't some teachers. All the kids. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so you go to, you go to the campus. Let's talk about your school. You get into the campus, bunch of, bunch of people in the auditorium. What's the first thing you say to get their attention? There has to be something like, what's your opening bid to get them all to get off their phones? Oh, I've only done this a thousand times. You think that'd yeah. be easy. Um, yeah. I have some openings. Basically, I said, look. Do they do they know who you are? Like, are you known around the community? Like, hey, this guy's No, like, no. Oh. The kids have no clue who I am. Right. And and one of the funny things is, is I show up very, very soon in my, like, third or fourth slide, I show a picture of myself as a young DEA guy. And I have this big beard and this, type, <laughs> you know, I look like a dashing young guy. Um, and I put this picture up. I say, hey, anybody know who that is? And silence, right? Yeah. You know, that's me. No way. And then one middle school, this girl goes, I've been catfished. Uh, <laughs> and I, I say, yeah, that's me when I started. The kids are like laughing. And, and, and I say, look, I don't put that picture in here to, to feel sad about getting old, although <laughs> I did miss the hair. But I say, look, 
you see me as an old bald white man. Mm-hmm. I say this in the States. I say it in Mexico. You know, I say, you see an old bald white gringo and the kids all in Mexico all laugh. Yeah. Because that's exactly what they see. Right. Right. And I say, and simply upon seeing me, you turn your brains off. Because you look at me and you think, man, what has that old man got to teach me? Right. Right? That old man's got nothing that can help me. That's what you think. And that's not unreasonable. <laughs> However, from that age, and I point to the picture, from that age, that young kid until this, I spent my entire life seeing what drugs do to individuals and families and communities and countries across the planet. And I, my program's called I Choose My Future. And I tell them, you can choose to listen or not. I'm here to share information that's going to help you in your life. If you think you know better at 15, good on you. Right. I'm here for those of you who are listening. Somebody's listening. Right. Right. And it's that direct approach. I'll bet you I know who's listening, the teachers. Well, it's that direct approach. So <laughs> Everyone I, can benefit. I was in a high school in Mexico City. The World Boxing Council president brought me to his son's high school in Mexico City. And it kind of a high, you know, high-end school, private school. And I spoke to like the ninth, 10th graders first. And then I did a second speech to the 11th, 12th graders. And I, I, I always need at least an hour. Right. And they had to give me just an hour. And some idiot from the school stands up and starts reading off a rule, list of rules off the slide. You will behave. You will not talk over the presenter. You will blah, 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 blah. And I'm looking at my watch, and the guy's eating up my presentation time. And I'm getting kind of unhappy and stressed. As soon as he stops, I grab the microphone, and I look at the kids, and I say, I don't need a list of rules. You're going to respect me or else. <laughs> and I start talking. And I, the kids were great. Did my presentation. At the end, one of the, the seniors, 18-year-old kid, comes up to the Mexican kid, and he goes, Rocky, when you told us that, you owned it. Really? You know, he said, you owned us because they're so starved for somebody coming in and treating them like, right. like adults. Like men. Like, well, like men and women. Yeah. And that's, when, that's yeah, one adults. of the reasons my program, I don't treat them like little kids. I right. talk to these kids today, these, these middle schoolers in Solana Beach. Right. I said, they, they were just, the principal's trying to talk and they're talking over him. So I started out kind of harsh this morning. Right. It's like, no, that's not right. He's talking, you shut up. Right. Right. So it should you're not, be. You're not little kids anymore. You're young adults. If you think you're going to disrespect me, look me in the eyes because that's not going to go well. And the kids are like, oh, my God, who is yeah. this crazy man? <laughs> but, but Bald it, guy's uh, getting crazy. But but many people would hear that at the beginning. Like, oh, geez, this is going to go really badly. Right. That's the secret for the kids investing. They're like, this guy's not BSing us. Right. Seriously, the kids smell BS. And they're like, wow, this, this, this guy's a lunatic, but he certainly believes what he's it saying. He says it like it is. Maybe I'll listen to him. Yeah, every once in a while you get one of those good speakers where you just go, oh, my God, this guy's finally someone's telling the truth. And I tell, the, I tell people who – people ask me, how does your program do any good? How can you measure it? I don't know. I don't have the tools yet. We are, in fact, with the county office working on some metric tools we can – Do you have a curriculum? Do you have a program? No. Okay, so, so you got to get – we just got to help you get dialed in. Well, we are. We're, we're building yeah. it up. But what I what – I, Tell people who ask me what I'm doing, I said, look, we're trying to figure out ways to effectively measure, effectively measure it. You know, you know, I've done surveys and the kids come out like 90% saying they thought the assembly was worth their time. I mean, I've got some good results, but that's not really right. meaningful in the world of academics. No, it has to be measurable. Yeah, something else. It's a little more deeper and technical. But what I say is, currently, I don't know how many kids believe my information. But I think pretty close to 100% believe that I believe my information. Right? Right, exactly. Is, isn't that all an apprentice you can really do? Right, exactly. They can listen or not, but I don't think any kid comes away thinking I'm making up anything. Where do you see yourself in a couple of years? I mean, where do you want this thing to go? Uh, the reason why I'm asking you, because I do believe what you're telling me now needs to be out there because it's extremely important. And there's, I think we'll see more and more kids dying. I don't think it's getting get better uh, based on what you're telling us and what Mark and I know. The fentanyl problem has increased tenfold. We don't even know if it's tenfold, a millionfold. There's just so much shit coming through that border and it's coming into Mexico and going across. And it's not 
like you said, it's not it's not Mexico's fault. It's, it's not America's fault, man. It's all of our faults, right? Because we're not really doing anything about it. it doesn't seem well. We're not actually like being smart about what we're doing. Um, it, look, people say we have a fentanyl crisis. I'm getting a lot of my work is exploding because people are waking up to the terrifying status of fentanyl. So people say, "Oh, we need you because we have a fentanyl crisis," and I go, "Yeah," but. Three years ago, it was a heroin crisis, and three years mm -hmm. before that, it was an oxycontin crisis, right. and crack. There, and there's, there's new stuff that's already more dangerous than fentanyl that's already showing up. Isonitazine is one of the new xylazine. Well, xylazine is mixed with fentanyl, but there's actually new opioids. The isonitazine, ISO, they that, call it that they've made that are they're synthetic. Remember designer drugs? Yes, they're, they're designer opioids now. They're okay. even more dangerous than fentanyl. So, fentanyl is always going to be there and cheaper, probably. But but what I say is we're in a fentanyl crisis. Yes, but underneath that there is a self-medication crisis. Yeah. We have a population of kids and adults looking to medicate away their, their pain. There's a mental because, illness crisis. Because under all that is a severe global mental unwellness. I'm not right. going to call it mental illness, mental unwellness. And we're not even, if we're not even really honest, to talk, if we're right. not willing to be honest talking about the drug problem, right. we're not even close to being honest about the self-medication and the mental unwellness right. problems. You know, when kids were <clears throat> back, what, 300 years ago, Kids didn't have time to screw around. They had to go to work. They started working at young ages. So <clears throat> maybe we need to uh, well, rethink. I mean, there were, there were the opium wars. I mean, there was a huge population in China addicted to opium, you know, back in the I, day. So I think that the drugs have always been. No, I understand that. But what I'm saying is kids in, in a lot of places, they had to grow up fast. Yeah, and they had to take responsibility. Yeah. And, and here... Well, when I was in Bolivia, a little light on them. Bolivia is a source right. country for cocaine, right? Very co and cocaine is really cheap in Bolivia, and yet I didn't. What see about almost, Peru? I yeah. didn't see same thing, but I didn't see almost any cocaine abuse in Bolivia in the in the population. And in fact, there was a <laughs> there was an old American guy who showed up in my town in Bolivia and was selling cocaine at parties, and uh, and uh, like like bindles they call it, little small envelopes party use, and that just really pissed me off. Right, because my town didn't have a lot of Americans in it, and this guy stood out, and everybody's coming to tell you, hey, this guy's here and there and everywhere. So I asked my cops, go after him. Right. I sicked my team of cops on him, and sure enough, they caught him at a party somewhere with a, with a bag full of these, these envelopes, and the guy went to prison in Bolivia. And it's like, no, don't come down here and start spreading this shit. No here. shit. But um, one of the reasons I think that Bolivian society doesn't have a lot of drug abuse in the youth is kind of where you're going, I think, Mark. They don't have the safety net. Right, right. You, you have to be productive in Bolivia. Right, or you start from your family. Yeah, or, well, Phew. yeah, and your family expects it. And you're, and again, if you start using drugs, you're not contributing to the family, and now you're a drain. And there's no safety. And there's no safety net. There's no rehab network. There's no nobody. There's no welfare system that's going to take care of you. So there's some very practical reasons for kids to understand. You know, even though this stuff's almost free here, I, 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 if I start taking it, I'm going to get exercised from my support network. Right here. Too many kids have, have gotten the notion that, hey, you know, uh, yeah, I'm going to get addicted, but that's fine. Then I'll just you go to rehab. And yeah. Maybe the problem is uh, in America, you have, you know, child protection laws. They say they cannot be employed prior to being 18, right, or no, 16. They, no, 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 that's, no that's, they're that's, working. That's they're working at 14. What about uh, they work at 14? Yeah, they can. I think it's a, it's a societal oh, thing. I mean, these kids are soft here. Look at them. Yeah, well, so are the adults. I mean, no, they weren't. I don't. I, okay, I'm not going to go with you on that either. I, I just think uh, I've seen them. Our, you go go check out our, a, a, a high school um, PE class. Some of these guys, they can't even do a pull up. One of and one they're of, playing. They sit in their rooms. A very they're good playing friend of mine. A very good friend of mine. His name's Aaron Rubin. 
right? Aaron Rubin is a quadriplegic in a wheelchair because he overdosed on oxy 20 years ago and didn't die, but came out severely paralyzed. And um, his family has incredible strength, and we worked together for years in the schools, and the family would bring Aaron, who can't speak, and the mom or the dad would tell his story, and he can gesticulate yes or no, you know, with his fingers. And uh, Aaron's just one of those drug users, right? Aaron had the bench press record at Poway High School. Kid was a complete stud, a hardworking football player, wow. um, hardworking parents, hardworking family, and he got hurt playing ball in high school. Started taking some pharmaceuticals for to, to get you know get healed up for his next game, where he was a beast on the field. Um, and then very quickly, you know, got hooked on oxy and, and, and could not get off it. Jeez. And his family put him in multiple rehabs. They had resources, and they put him in multiple rehabs. They finally got him home after some lengthy rehab, and they had their son back, right? They had their son back. Well, what happens so often, too often, when families don't understand about rehab, you, you they can clean that your loved one out. They can get the drugs out of the system. But when that person comes home, there's, the addiction potential is still there. I mean, that doesn't go away. And then that person's same community, all the people that right. were drugging with your child right. are coming right back around them. Of course. And so this group of druggies comes right back around Aaron and are offering drugs. And he goes, no, 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 until one night. And I apologize to the family if I'm slightly misstating this, but my understanding is he's at his best friend's house. And the guy offers him oxy, and Aaron, for whatever reason, goes, okay, and uses oxy and overdoses. And the family is waiting for Aaron on for Sunday breakfast, and he's not, it's, it's like a mandatory thing. He's not showing up. They're calling, phone's ringing, phone's ringing. Finally, the home he's at, the parents wake up because his phone's ringing. They find Aaron blue on the sofa. They don't call 911. They call the pharmacy in TJ where the drugs are required, saying, what do we do? Those people say, call 911. They call a family friend who's a paramedic. What do we do? He screams, call 911. They don't call 911. They drag him in a car to the Palmerado Hospital, dump him out of the car, don't tell the doctors why he's there. The doctors ask, why is he like this? We don't know. So the doctors lose even more time before they finally figure out that Aaron, you know, has overdosed on opioids. And, and the parents were asked to sign an order saying, don't resuscitate. I mean, they thought, no brain activity, Aaron's gone. The family, these parents are in this process. And then, incredible, God's great, Aaron's brain fired back up. Switched back on. Switched back on. And bad trip. No. And Aaron. More than a bad trip, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah. So Aaron's trapped in this broken body. He is, he didn't lose any of his intelligence. He's the same guy. And the first time I went, first time I went to meet him, first time I saw a video of them, I went to their home to meet them. And, and uh, I don't know, I didn't know what to expect. Right. You know, I, I didn't expect a guy laying in a bed, you know, a quadriplegic. And he's sitting in his wheelchair, he's looking at me, and he's listening to everything I'm saying to his parents. And and uh, he makes, you know, the yes or no with his fingers. And so his dad asked me a question, and instead of saying yes or no, I went, you know, I, I made the gesture. And I hear the, and Aaron's <laughs> laughing his ass off, you know, because I'm making fun of right. him. It's fun. I'm busting his balls like right. guys do. Right, exactly. So I went to Aaron that day, and I shook his hand and said, dude, will you please come and work in schools with me? And his mom told me that she saw a look in his eyes that she hadn't seen before that, you know, and I'm treating like a man. Right. But that goes back to what we were saying earlier. You know, it's not just weak people, Mark. It's, right. There are some. It's just this is so normalized. And, in fact, some of our best kids, Mark, are the ones that most don't get it. They, they think they're somehow stronger, better. I think Aaron probably thought that. He's such a stud that he can handle right. anything. No. See, that's what's nice about interviewing you because I – I even, even though with all of my experience, whether it's law enforcement, education, or what I did in the county, I still have some preconceived notions, and I'm involved. Right. Yeah. So you can only imagine 
what other people are thinking. But I want to talk to you about one, one thing before we end. There's this new push for something called microdosing. Of um, they well, want to make mushrooms. psilocybin and peyote or whatever legal, and there's there's actually people that are condoning the use of the psychiatric well, drugs there's, there's, Bec- they, because they say there's some there's some met, there's some medicinal purposes because it does help people who have depression or anxiety and I, 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 do you okay. know anything about y- yes. this? Yes. So okay, let's finish with this. What another thing the parents don't understand? The the phones have changed everything. You know, when we were kids, we had friends who were druggies, but they had to kind of know people. You know, you had to go and get on your bike and ride your bike somewhere to actually get the drugs. Hmm. You had to learn from somebody. Now, any kid who's interested gets in their smartphone, and it's incredible, horrible, the information that's available to them. Websites dedicated to educating kids about every drug that's out there, how much you can use, what you can mix it with, where you can get it, right? And uh, that's what parents don't understand, right? And there's a world of people out there who, who argue all the great benefits from microdosing or using weed or whatever they're doing, right? Oh, it just helps me be more creative, more productive. Kids see that. So kids who are inclined to want to do this validate that. They get in their internet bubble of people telling, oh, yeah, good to, good to go. At the same time, there are very, very legitimate and rigorous scientific studies being done about using ecstasy, using psilocybin to treat PTSD and mental health disorders. Right. I think that's great. I think it's great. I mean, why not? Why not? But those are highly controlled scientific studies right. with pure drugs administered by doctors. Right. But again, the adolescent brain, the adolescent brain, this is what people, it's the adolescent brain. Right. right. So weed might be illegal for people who are 21. The kids go, oh, it's legal for me too. Right. So the kids read these headlines. Oh, ecstasy is being studied for PTSD. Oh, I can go use the right, exactly. off this jackass down at the corner. Or, or, yeah, mushrooms. Yeah, you got to be careful. Because we're not educating them on the full story. Right. So it's the cultural shift. So yeah. That's why I mean, we have to change the culture. And that's going to take a long, long time. And we have to do it on faith, guys. We I have agree. to start doing it on faith. Okay, so how do our, our population here get in touch with you, email you? There's probably a lot of people listening to this that either have a problem or know someone. I mean, I think everyone's affected. I don't think there's one person that knows at least one person that they know, whether a friend or a family member, that hasn't been phased by some type of uh, alcohol or drug abuse. So how can they get in touch with you? What's your social media? What's your web? So I have a, I have a, a personal website. Uh, I work half time for the county. So okay. anything I do in San Diego is is free to whatever group that is, and that's all under my job, the county. Okay. I also have half of my time, which I'm going to Mexico. I've been hired to go up to, to Montana in a few weeks, and then in Colorado and Denver. So I'm traveling around working in other school districts, but I have a personal website, Rocky Heron, R O C K Y H E R R O N dot com. And I have a contact at the bottom. And so whether you're out of the area and you want to use me for my services or you're within the county, um, you can contact me through that. And then I can direct you to the county office website and we can start to coordinate, you know, the, the educational event. Well, thank you so much. You did over 30 years in DEA. Didn't get killed. <laughs> you learned what it's really like to deal with a whole bunch of people. You did some undercover work. You got there at a young age and now you're doing... What I think is like the angels' work is helping people who are getting phased and you're doing it because you love kids and you want to make sure everything's cool. Nothing more than that. I know you're not doing it. You're not money-driven. You're doing everything for free, which I think you should be getting paid a lot. Well, but, he's uh, not doing everything for free. Good. Because so, he shouldn't be. I mean, right. the county, yes. No, but, I, I, no have a, I have a job paid, with the county. I'm, 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 I'm paid as a teacher by the county so oh, okay. for my halftime. You can pay teacher salary? No, I'm gonna pay. I'm gonna pay. It's a nice, a nice one. We're offering a nice okay, salary. Good. Just want to make sure you're not getting so ripped off. I, I feel bad for teachers. So do I. So anyway, thanks, brother.
Yeah. Stay in touch. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, we'll thanks, do it again. Thank you, Rocky. We'll do any follow-ups. You want to come by and just give a message, or you can even maybe bring one of your students here or something. We could do that too, and just get the word out there. Because Mark and I, just to let you know, is a is a name that we created because it's what you should know. So hey, just to let you know, there's a problem with drugs. Hey, just to let you know, we've got to deal with this issue. So anyone can come up on our platform too. So we're looking for people like you. Okay. Thank you, brother. All right. You're welcome. Good job. Later. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye.